evening everybody and welcome once again to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined once again by Mr. Jim Lamming and Ross Hughes. Say hi guys. Hi. Uh, we're my psychics for the night here as uh, we come together like a, uh, like a Justice League to talk about these movies. And uh, tonight it's the ultimate superhero slobber knocker. No, it's not Batman vs. Superman. It's Whedon v. Snyder. We're going to be talking about not just one, but two versions of Justice League, because at long last, Warner have released the Snyder Cut, a movie the studio denied existed, then the fans seem to will into existence. Now, there will be some disagreements here, but if the debate gets too intense, guys, we're going to use our safe word, Marfa. Before then... (laughs) We're going to be talking a little bit more about both directors, along with the state of the DC Universe to date. But first, let's kick off with the usual question. Guys, what the heck have you been watching lately? Why don't we start with you, Jim? Uh, recently, the Horror Channel have been slowly playing the Hellraiser movies. So the most recent one was Hellraiser 3, which is probably the worst of the uh, uh, the, the original three, I believe, are the only ones that were released in the cinema and have their own little section in the entire series. It started off pretty well, actually. It had a really good first half, establishing the characters, you know, setting up what's going to happen, and then it just goes to shit. I, f- I think they tried to steer it down to, do, to be too much like Nightmare on Elm Street got with all the one-liners quips little comedy moments, that sort of thing. And the Cenobites were shit. Yeah, you got what, the, the movie camera Cenobite, the CD yeah, the guy Cenobite with, or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the guy with the camera in his face, the DJ who had all the CDs lodged in his head, <laughs> and just the goth lady with a fag. Yeah, stood <laughs> there smoking. <laughs> I, I ranked the Hellraiser films a couple of years back. I put number three as my second favourite. But I, I mean, things, I accept the second film is in a lot of ways better. You know, it's got a much more ambitious design to it. It's more unique. It's more in line with the first. But I really just sort of liked the, fuck it, we're just going to let Pinhead let loose here, you know? Like, there's just something a bit quite apocalyptic about the entire film. Yeah, um, it's it's not a bad film by any means. It's just that it really does not stick the landing. This the setup's great and it looks fantastic. I'm really into studio films where you've got those massive matte paintings in the background. Mm. All looks brilliant, and you know it's the early nineties. I'm really fond of films made around that era, and it does line it up, but it just fails to knock it down at the end. Once once Pinhead is released from his statue prison it's a fun little bit in a club with all the chains and everyone getting absolutely torn to shreds but it, it just yeah it just all of a sudden flips and goes into one-liners and stuff like that it's it's very jarring i suppose and then it just you know there's a few explosions and then it finishes I like what with pinhead back in story you know where where you you meet him as a soldier yeah. I thought that was cool. I mean, Pinhead is a, is a statue, a pillar of the beginning was somewhat goofy. But in fairness, you know, you work with what you have. That was the end of a previous yeah. one. But aye. 
Um, have you seen Have you seen all the other sequels before? Um, I, I've, I think it's Bloodlines that I might have seen. It was on the Sci-Fi Channel some years ago. I remember enjoying it, but don't really remember much of it. Um, I mean, obviously, I've watched the first two uh, over the last month or so. As I say, they've been slowly being played on the Horror Channel. And the first two are brilliant. I would say that, in my opinion, the first two are just as good as each other, especially how ambitious in scale the second one is. But um, no, I am keen to see the sequels, but getting hold of them as a collection seems to be now an impossible task. Pretty much, yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them are on streaming for a few for like a few weeks at a time. But I mean, I've seen all ten of them, and uh, like number ten is very good. Number six is really unintentionally funny. But there's a dark period when you watch part seven, you'll think "Eh, that's. A good concept done badly. This must be the low point for a series. Then you reach number eight, and you're <laughs> like, "Well, that was shit." But but it can't be any worse than that. And then you reach number nine. But that tr- that trilogy, that run of three, is dire. But number ten really impressed me. It brought a lot back. You know, it's genuinely quite unpleasant to watch. I'm sorry, but I've got to mention Inferno Part 5. It's one of my favourites of the franchise. Scott Derrickson, of course, then Doctor Strange. Can we mention Marvel in this podcast? <laughs> it's not against the rules, <laughs> but yeah. I think Inferno is absolutely brilliant. This is one of the most underrated sequels of all time. I mean, with that, I, I, I didn't like the film that much because it was like a murder mystery yeah. where the audience know that Pinhead done it, right? Um, <laughs> but the characters don't, so you're watching them slowly figure out it's Pinhead. But at the same time, it looked absolutely amazing. Yeah. Like, you could just see, like, there's a real quality to the aesthetic that I don't think um, any of the other non-cinematic ones have. I think part four was a cinema one as well, by the way, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, it was, yeah, but they, that was the prequel one, it was actually the 18th century one. I, enjoyed, I, I liked that one as well, it, it had a very good ending to that. It was both prequel and sequel, because you also yes. had the outer space section. <laughs> Oh god, Pinhead in space. Yeah, that's that's the other one I've seen. Then I remember the space bit. <laughs> anyway, sorry. What else have you been watching, Jim? Not a lot, really, because I've got to say, Justice League is taking up a lot of time. Would you believe? But <laughs> I did watch a, another film, uh, not quite a horror film, but um, uh, it was a Kurt Russell dirty cop thriller called Dark Blue, set to the backdrop of the LA riots in '92, and it was very unsettling um i don't know whether i've got an anxiety problem or whether it was just that film but my heart's been racing ever since i've watched it <laughs> um, but yeah it's just a great cop procedural you know dirty cops getting to the bottom of you know it all and it's just a great looking film and with it being set in the night is yeah it's really my thing so the sets and the costumes look fantastic as well and uh, what about yourself, Ross? What have you been watching lately? I think I'm going through a weird spell at the moment. I think I've got a bit of lockdown fatigue, you know, as I have all these films to watch and I've struggled of late to watch anything. But uh, as Jim said, maybe because Zack Snyder's Justice League was like 20 hours long and it took me four days to watch it. <laughs> but uh, much like Steph, who herself is sadly missing tonight, I also missed the last podcast and I absolutely thought, guys, You've done a fantastic job on discussing three of the most complicated films you could ever review. So a massive well done. But since that last podcast, the one I appeared on, I think I've watched uh, the new Wrong Turn film, which I think, David, you mentioned in one one time. Oh, yeah. What, what do you think of the new Wrong Turn? 
I think he'll piss off the fan base who will have nothing more than a bit of three fingers and his merry men. But you know what? I enjoyed it. I think it will end up being the Halloween 3 or Jason's The New Beginning entry, you know, a sequel reboot that fans will probably appreciate a lot more in a few years' time once the franchise goes back to the inbred killing family. But I really, really enjoyed it. I thought the dark concept was pretty horrific. And having sat through the horrid Cabin Fever remake, I mean, at least the director and all these people involved had the balls to try something different. I'd agree with that. It's a very different type of movie. I mean, it almost shouldn't be called a wrong turn one, right? Um, one thing I, do, I would I would question you on, though, between you guys, have you ever met a proper fan of a wrong turn franchise? No. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things like Children of the Corn, you know, where I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever met anyone that properly likes those films, um, or. I know a couple of Hell, a couple of proper Hellraiser fans. I don't think Hellraiser is comparable, even though there has been some dodgy quality control. Um, you know, there's still a really solid set of films at the beginning. But Children of the Corn doesn't even have that. And uh, The Purge is another one where I know plenty of people who watch The Purge films, but I don't really know anyone who loves The Purge films. And I think Wrong Turns one of those ones that. You know, uh, if you watch it, if habit, if people heard there's never going to be a new Wrong Turn ever again. I don't think many people would give a shit. I mean, I think that's maybe why this one got a cinema release, because they're saying, oh, well, you know, by this point, we may as well just do a complete reboot of the series. And I don't think people were... Um, it's not like Child's Play, where you reboot Child's Play, but you still have to keep the original continuity yeah. going, because you also have that fan base, you know? It's obvious they're going to go back to the the old concept after this one, uh, which is a shame, really, because I loved, I liked the lead character, the female. It had a really good ending, which it could have been explored further, but I doubt we'll ever get to see that happen because the demand is there for Three Fingers and his gang to come back. So we probably have, you know, wrong turn 10. Oh, shit, we took a wrong turn again. I, I don't know. I'd be willing to make a long-term bet that we never see them again. I think, I think if we... I think my long-term bet would be the one we just got, I think that will get a sequel, but I don't think I think original continuity is over. I don't think we'll ever see that again. You reckon? Yeah, I think is dead and buried. I think the demand is there, I gotta be honest with you. I mean they have done so well with seven films, or six or seven films that they've got that like small little fan base. It's like the children of the corn, like you said. I mean, there's another film coming out of that now, another sequel coming out. So you know, I don't think it's the last we spend time in those woods, let me tell you. All right, well let's make let's make a long term bet here, folks. Uh, five years from now, when I'm sure we'll still be doing this podcast, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if, there's another, if there's another wrong turn that follows, follows the original continuity or not. Maybe, maybe there will be. I, I, I'd sort of like to... If there is, despite everything I've just said, if there is, I will still watch it. <laughs> oh, same as me. I would be the first one in the queue to watch Wrong Turn 12. <laughs> so what else have you been watching except Wrong Turn? Well, it's mostly TV shows, virtually. Uh, I binge-watched the whole of You Horner starring Brian Cranston. You know, being such a die-hard, breaking bad fan, I'd watch anything with this guy in. And a concept of a family man breaking the law for his family may have shades of Walter White, but it's a decent few hours of your life, and it's good little payoff towards the end. Uh, other than that, these new single episodes of The Walking Dead's new season is just not working whatsoever. I don't know if you watched them, Jim. Uh, not yet, because it's not very long. We're waiting for the whole thing to have right. aired, and then we're just yeah. going to uh, binge it then. We're doing standalone stories now. Yeah, I mean, they, they are very COVID-restricted, but it's just so boring. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to next week's one personally because it's got the Negan prequel, which shows him before, you know, with his wife in real life, which, is, which sounds good. But honestly, it's not moving the plot forward as the last three episodes. It's very, very dull. And the Darvel and Carvel one, if that's the future of The Walking Dead because they're doing a spin-off of them on the board, then it doesn't bode well because it was such a boring 45 minutes of my life and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. But uh, apart from that, Snow Pizza is still the most underrated show on TV on Netflix. It's one of the, honestly, it's fantastic. It's coming towards the, the end of season two, which I, which I recommend to anyone to watch. But what I've started doing for some strange reason, I've got, I've, I've got this urge to watch film franchises, you know, from back to back for some strange reason. So I started yesterday with Rise, Dawn and War of the Planet of the Apes. Nice. Now, the first two are just stunning films, aren't they? Perhaps even better than the Charlton Eston classic, even though I still feel that war is the weakest of them all, but it does bode, bode well into what Matt Reeves can bring to the world of Gotham with the new Batman flick. I reckon um, the second one, Dawn, that is probably one of the best action films of, of films of this millennium. Yes, I agree with you. Absolutely fantastic. And there's something like, what I liked about war... I thought the first was the weakest one. I think the good thing about war for me is like I liked seeing uh, it was rewarding seeing Caesar's arc getting complete. You know, like for something it was a really good character journey that was running through all three of those films, and I think it was a really nice payoff by the end. I think war lost me with no spoilers uh, with what Woody Harrelson done at the beginning of the war film. Mm. to impact Caesar's life. That film lost me from that moment because I just thought it was a bit needless. I, I don't know why. I just thought, I even watched it for the second time yesterday. I was still angry with it. Maybe that's the reaction the director and the writer wanted from everywhere. But I just didn't like, Caesar's been through so much. Did that? Re- I just thought it was a needless act to put into the plot. It's interesting having the humans as being unambiguously the bad guys in it, right? Like, as an audience, we're watching it, we're like, yeah, kick the shit out of the humans, you know, we're rooting <laughs> for the apes. Yeah, um, only the once when it first aired at the cinema. Uh, it was good. I liked the way it tied into the continuity of the original films, uh, with the humans slowly losing the ability to speak. And then, you know, once the last of humanity is wiped out, they then go on to, you know, settle elsewhere. That, that was really good. But I did feel it maybe went on a bit with that last film. Um, but overall, it's a very entertaining series. Um, definitely as good as the original film. So when you say it blends into the original films, do you mean the Charlton Eston classic or do you mean the Mark Wahlberg one? <laughs> <laughs> Depends which timeline you're on, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. God. Can anyone explain to me that ending of the Mark Wahlberg, Tim Burton one? I just, I, to this day, I don't get it. I, I, I understand it, but the fact that it's not explained in the film kind of, yeah, it's just... Oh. Like, a lot of the time, I'm fine with films letting you figure stuff out for yourself, but that was just a bit too much. I you know, I just started thinking, what? Explain that to me? And I don't think it was any Google then to, you know, to look back on, you know, oh, <laughs> stupid film. I remember uh, a few years back, me and a flatmate were in the pub. It was uh, one of David's laws of pubs is if your pub has no windows, it's not a good pub. And we were in this pub and uh, they had a planet, it was just our local, they had a planet of the apes, uh, Mark Wahlberg one playing on the screen. And uh, there's this family sat in front of the telly watching it, right? 
me and my family are like, oh, we're watching, watching Planet of the Apes, Mark Wahlberg one. We start speaking to each other, then, then one of the guys turns around and goes, shh, and then turns around and, start, and continues watching the film. It's fucking baffling. <laughs> 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 and they had his kids with him there, there and everything. Oh my god! <laughs> I can send him a trip to watch, to go to a pub in the afternoon to watch a uh, to watch Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes. Oh god! Uh, I know. I don't think I've only ever seen that once, and I I might watch it again now because I watch these two films. I gotta be honest. I think it's actually on Disney Plus, isn't it? So uh, I might watch it on the weekend. As horror fans, it's one of those things we do to ourselves. You know, when you start watching a franchise, you go, "I'm going to have to watch the remainder of these." And then it's like you're at like the sixth Amityville Horror and going, why? <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's like digging your own mass grave. As long as it got to as long as it got to the Amityville Horror Part Six and not Amityville <laughs> Vibrator, which is Part Fifty Four. <laughs> I think it's like it is digging your own mass grave because as long as fans keep on watching these, they're gonna have more of them made because you go, well, these are popular. <laughs> you know, just say no at some point. Oh God. Lately, I've been watching The Dark and the Wicked, which is uh, by the uh, same director as uh, The Strangers. And like The Strangers, it's a very quite like it's a very intimate, close quarters horror. Although this one's uh, this one's more kind of supernatural. But while there's some really good, really uncomfortable bits, it's really, really forgettable. Like I mean, I watched it. I watched it like last week. And most of the third act is just gone to me right now. Um, I mean, it, I, I know that I enjoyed it while I saw it, but it was quite, uh, it was quite generic. Um, in a, and in a way that was surprisingly so because it's getting a lot of really good hype on Twitter. And uh, I also watched Synchronic the other night. Technically, there's an embargo in this film, but by the time this goes live, the embargo should be lifted. Um, Synchronic's a new sci-fi thriller from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. You know, the guys who did uh, Spring and The Endless. Like The Endless, there's a really good idea to this film, but it takes way too long to get there. And then once it does get there, finally, it goes into a very sci-fi territory. Like, at first you'll be thinking you're watching a horror film. A lot of gory, dead bodies show up, but it's very much a sci-fi one. The problem is, once it gets going, it just gets swamped down in exposition where it starts looking at its rules and stuff like this, and like, here's what happens if you do that. So the second half just gets dominated by Anthony Mackie, who's very good in it, plays a good character, but it's just a lot of him just doing these, this kind of exposition. Um, like, for the plot, there's a lot of show-don't-tell, and then because this is dominating a two-hour movie... Then for the characters, a lot of it gets rushed. There's a lot of tell don't show for the characters. Where like you know, Anthony Mackie's entire backing story is really awkwardly communicated by the Fifty Shades of Fifty Shades of Grey actor, whose name suddenly is forgotten, speaking to his wife about Anthony Mackie's tragic backing story, which is all about uh, Hurricane Katrina. And uh, you know, I just thought there's such potential here, just like the other films is seen by the same team. There's such potential, but it's just kind of lost in this kind of mumblecore uh, stuff that they seem to specialise in. You know, I'd like to be wrong, you know, maybe at some point Justin Benson and Darren Moorhead will make a great film, but at the moment they just kind of seem a bit like uh, like the most overrated names in horror since uh, since uh, Adam Winger kicked off, you know? So, yeah, Synchronic, good, but 
No, they've not made your masterpiece yet. I think that, uh, like you quite rightly said, they've got such a high reputation. I mean, these two directors. I mean, the the, the actual the, the films the film world actually loves them, but I don't think they appeal much to the the, the audience out there. Where the critics lavish the praise, the the, it, the films actually leave the fans cold. Uh, I, I I I enjoyed Spring, which was a pretty good, decent spin on the vampires tale. But uh, endless. Well, the title summed it up because it seemed like endless. They didn't finish, <laughs> you know. But I haven't seen the new one, and the reasons why you just the reasons why you just explained. Uh, Jamie Dornan was, of course, the name of the guy from Fifty, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I quite liked their one uh, after Midnight that came out last year. They were producers on it, and it's very much in their kind of uh, lo-fi genre style style you know of like a lo-fi take on like a high concept but uh yeah that was quite good although you know maybe didn't write or direct it but directed but it's got her dna all over it that made me think yeah maybe these guys could do something that i really that i really warm to eventually before we move on by the way uh i believe you've got some news you were wishing to share ross well some shocking news dust down your bon jovi cd as we go in all blaze of glory as it seems, Emilio Estevez is set to bring back the young guns for the third and final time. Oh, it shit. Took, took to complete a trilogy of films started way back in 1988. Now, I adored the original as a kid, but as Estevez played Billy the Kid, and there's rumours of all the old gang returning, shall we call this middle-aged guns, with Billy the old man leading the charge? Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, that's uh, good, isn't it? That's good. <laughs> Jim, I saw you do a wee air punch. You're big on your young guns. Oh, man, when I was a kid, I absolutely loved them films. I'd, I'd take them off a time and watch them all the time. I mean, even now, I love them. So I don't care what it's going to be like. I will be there day one. I think it's a bit like the other bit of news of a face-off two sequel. I know, yeah, you can get excited, but personally, I think it's a bit too late of an entry for fans to get really excited about. And I think maybe both films are hoping to live off its no-doubt high reputation. Uh, but at least with it being a Western, it has got a lot of you know ground it can cover, so it's not entirely a niche thing like Face Off was, uh, as a comparison. But then Young Guns 2 end the storyline? Oh, the first one did as well. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah, true, yeah. yeah, true. yeah. Uh, horror news, Fiona Dorff is reprising her role as Nika for the much-anticipated Chucky TV show, which I'm really looking forward to. And Darwin Lynn Bosman is begging Lionsgate to let him make a Leprechaun sequel. Yeah, I've been uh, reading a lot of chatter about that on Twitter, to be fair. Which, you know, considering how low budget and pretty much all of them have been straight to DVD, I can't see why not. I just don't understand how, why Lionsgate haven't given the money for it. He was a quality, talented director and, you know, and I don't know. Uh, I actually enjoyed Leprechaun Returns, though. The, the last one. I thought it was pretty good. Why don't you just let him? You know, I mean, he's uh, like, you know, Darren Bosson's a perfectly competent director. You know, he's uh, he's made far bigger films than any of the Leprechaun sequels. You know, he's he's kind of got a good sort of sense of playfulness about him. Frankly, I think he'd be great for a series. I don't think it's a great series, but I'd watch one of his films in it. Leprechaun Returns is good, though. That was a pretty good sequel, the last one. Really? I'm seeing it. Yeah, so yeah, it was good. You haven't seen it. No, I've not watched any of them since uh, Leprechaun of the Hood. So you, you guys talked about Shark of the Corn in the last podcast, but you haven't seen Leprechaun Returns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Hang on, I mean, be, I, sorry, before we start on that, because I missed last uh, last time, I, Steph and Nodo come back from our next podcast and stage she has watched Shocks of the Corn and an episode of probably Changing Rooms with Carol Smiley. She's a maverick. <laughs> you know, the rest of us are stuck in our little boxes. She's way outside the box of her, of her Emmerdale and stuff like oh, that. But I was listening last time and, and, and the thought came into my head. How pissed off would you be if you were, say, Scott Glossman, who has been waiting for years and years to make Behind the Mask 2, the Leslie Vernon slasher, you know, which is one of the best stunning pieces of horrors that fans have demanded for years for the sequel. Now, can you picture the scene, right, Scott? Yes, I would love to make Behind the Mask 2, and I do have a fan base. That means this will be quite successful on release. Studio executive, hmm, unsure about that. What else have we got? Filmmaker, I have an idea. I want to sort of remake Children of the Corn, but instead of children, <laughs> I want to put sharks in a cornfield. Studio executive, whoa, here's the money. Go and make it now, son. Come on, man, do you know what I mean? It'd be almost as pissed off as if you spent yonks doing CGI on very elaborate sequ- action sequences or building a set of a temple and they get cut out because of reshoots. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be coming towards that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's it for the news. Folks, we've got a shitload to go through here. Um, what I thought we'd be doing is going through the films that come before Justice League from the DC uh, Extended Universe. Now, we're not going to be mentioning anything before Man of Steel, but there's a ton of DC out there. You know, if you're looking at the old Richard Donner or Superman's your Burton, Schumacher, and uh, Nolan Batman films. Heck, we even have Shaquille O'Neal made a DC film called Steel. So, like, you know, there's a lot of DC films out there, but we don't really have time to go through, uh, to go through like, all 40 of them or so. And have any of you, have you guys got a favourite DC film, though, before, before we reach the new incarnations? Mine will definitely be one of the Batman films, but the majority are all great, so... To pick one, it would be tough, but I think The Dark Knight would probably just edge out the others. Uh, Batman Begins, I was also big on. Far less of a fan of The Dark Knight Rises than either of the other two. I just sort of thought, like, we have to watch the arc of Batman has to become Batman twice in the course yeah. of the movie. It just, it just seemed pointless. <laughs> I, I was getting quite into Bane as just being like a radical commie where he's like, oh, let's all storm Wall Street, right? I was like, part of me was like, yeah, go, you know, he's representing the 99% movement, right? But then Bane's going, oh, okay, so, you know, now we've started this people's re- revolution and taking over Gotham. It turns out that I know there's a bomb under the city, but a bomb's going to blow up the entire of Gotham. So you're like, okay, you have two... There's two why would you draw attention to yourself like this, right? And secondly, it's like, it, you lost the idea that Bane is a true believer. You know, it became all about Bane is doing this to impress a girl. A plan that will result in his inevitable death. So it's not a particularly adaptive mating strategy that Bane's pursuing here. It's a very high-risk <laughs> one. Um, so... Yeah, I, I didn't like I didn't like that. I just disappointed, you know. I want I want a bad guy to be the good guy in their own head, you know. Yeah. Or just to be completely rag like the Joker, where you know it's not really it's not really a motivation there. You know that that I'm fine with as well. But I just sort of thought with Bane, you know, you have this. I, I like the idea of someone who's got an ideological point. You know, like throughout it, we've got um, 
Catwoman saying like, all right, you know, these sort of greedy bastards like Bruce Wayne, you know, we're leaving absolutely nothing for the rest of us. And uh, then come the end of the movie, you know, uh, they're like, oh, by the way, all that stuff about you leaving nothing for the rest of us. Oh, bullshit. We're actually just trying to do distraction. We blow up the city. It was a weekend then as well. When I, I mean, he, he flew off in a bomb and he's supposed to have died. You know, that stupid scene with Michael Caine at the end looking across the coffee mm. table, which is a bit like Inception. Was he really there? You know, was with Michael Caine imagining it? It was, it was a really disappointing ending to what was, a, you know, a really good first two films. Yeah, that bit aside, I quite like the little uh, fault set up with Robin at the end there. That, that left it on a nice little note for me. Which we'll never get to see. Ah, no. But there's, there's always your imagination. Yes. We might get a cut of that, you know, the Robin <laughs> cut in 10 years' time. I think, I think for me, again, it's a Batman film, but I was lucky enough to have lived through 1989 with uh, Batman, you know, Michael Keaton, Tim Burton. I, unless you lived in you. I don't think you could appreciate how massive that film was. It was absolutely uh, yeah. everywhere. I, I can remember the hype for that. Oh. I mean, I couldn't have been much older than six or seven, but you, you couldn't escape it. It was huge, wasn't it? I, you, you could have Batman haircuts, which I did. I had the Batman symbol at the back of my head, <laughs> which, you know, I thought I looked absolutely wicked, but looking back, I probably looked like a brat. But, you know, what Tim Burton done with that film, and Michael Keaton is so good in the role. Uh, my memory of, of course, the Dark Knight was Adam West, you know, kapow, boom, you know, the fighting off a rubber shock, you know, and Greg in the bat repellent spray. But Michael Keaton just took that to another level, and it's such a fantastic film. It's not the best Batman film. I think you arguably you could say and The Mask of the Phantasm, which is an animated Batman film it was you know that's well considered as one of the best Batman films of all time and I know we're not going to go back into the back catalogue but what I will say is even though Marvel has probably nailed the live action DC has absolutely got the animated the world to perfection there are some films out there which deserve an audience they really do I think one that I grew up on was uh, I grew up with a VHS of uh, 1980s Superman 2 which I thought was at the time I thought was the absolute bomb and then, like you know, when you see uh, when you see Zod in um, Man of Steel, I was like, oh, I liked the sort of kind of like Bee Gees version of Zod a lot better <laughs> than this one, you know? Um, yeah, uh, it was a good movie. I mean, you know, we'll go back and watch it nowadays. Some of, some of it's a bit silly. Like it's weird seeing Marlon Brando in it at all. You know, the bit where he uh, he hitchhikes back from the North Pole. You know, for <laughs> some goof, but. You know, it's a really good action film. It's so hopeful and optimistic, which I think those early ones were, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, for probably the, week, the weakest of that lot would be uh, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, where, like, I mean, part of me sort of loves it as well. Like, the whole concept of Nuclear Man is a bad guy. For, like, yeah, Nuclear Man, he's got all the same powers as Superman, but he can't move when the sun's rays are, are, aren't upon him. You're like, well, he's... It's fucking useless when, <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, like it's difficult to generate tension in a Superman film. There, they're saying, okay, he's got all Superman's powers. Good. So did Zod, but he beat up Zod for like all Superman's powers. Every bit as hard as Superman, but he can't move from the majority of the for our cycle during the winter, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't Superman put him in a cupboard at one point, and then like he just ceases to move. Then he like takes a cupboard up to the moon or something like that. Like it's like you know it's a major weak point. Like you know normally, don't be wrong. Nuclear man could beat the shit out of me, right? 
But at the same time, if I had all his powers, but I could move any time I wanted, right, then uh, I could beat the shit out of him. You know, you lose your tension. Yeah, what have you guys got a particular, not including the new ones, a particular low point in the DC universe? Uh, well, I'm still th- well. Go back to Superman Four. I still can't understand after all these thirty odd years how Superman built the Wall of China. Well, rebuilt the Wall of China by using his eyes. I just <laughs> uh, that just baffles me. But the low point for me, of course, was Batman versus Robin. Uh, Batman and Robin. Sorry, the Joel Schumacher. Oh my good gracious me! The bath card, the bat nipples. Ah, oh, please make a stop. Make a stop. Flipping <laughs> I think I know, the, the, I... Only, the only person that him who seemed to be having a good time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was an absolute mess, that and you know it's unfortunately Batman Forever was like at least a star better. I just didn't buy Val Kilmer. I just thought that uh, he's look he's better than George Clooney. I mean, anyone in Gotham would know that George Clooney was Batman and Bruce Wayne, you know, because he he was he was one he was one North winner. He, he he didn't change his voice, nothing at all. I mean, he was actually <laughs> Bruce Wayne walking around in a Batman suit. But Val Kilmer was so oh, he was he was terrible as Batman as well. Coming from Michael Keaton to him, that put me off straight away. But Jim Carrey's yeah. good today, and Tommy Johnson's good today as well. It's always the bad guys in the old versions are better than the. No, they, they had really good bad guys tonight. You had the penguin, you had uh bat you had uh Catwoman, the Riddler, you know, Harvey Two Fists. Really good bad guys. Uh, for me, Batman Forever is probably the worst one. Um I've never been able to watch it all the way through. I just can't sit for it. It's so aggravating. Like Batman and Robin, I actually enjoy. It's I would say it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. It's really camp and probably terrible as a Batman, but as a film, it's it's silly fun, um, but I just cannot stand Batman for it. Like, the amount of times I've tried to watch it. What and was I so just, bad about it for you? Uh, it's just so great. I mean, Jim Carrey, I normally don't mind, but he really gets to me in that film. I just, <laughs> it's just so annoying. Um, and I know that's his thing. And yeah, even Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, Ross enjoyed him, but I, I thought he was awful. Like, yeah, he's constantly laughing all the time, you know, probably laughing at us watching it, to be fair. He was trying to win Jack Nicholson's joke a bit. I, 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 do agree, I do agree with him. There is one anecdote about that film, though. I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently on set, Tommy Lee Jones walked up to Jim Carrey and just said to him, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. <laughs> and that is it. <laughs> first heard they were bringing back Superman and making him dark what did you guys think? Following the Nolan Batman films I was really up for it, I mean I thought those three films were fantastic and it was probably what really got me into the, the character and further DC characters in the big way that I like them these days um, yeah, I was really, really excited for it. Yeah, how about yourself, Ross? Yeah, same here. I, I thought, you know, after the Batman films, I thought, yeah, here we go. Christopher Nolan was an executive producer as well. Uh, Zack Snyder was coming in on the back of 300. I thought, you know, this is this is going to be a good, good 
film and especially after Superman Returns which was quite was quite a disappointment if that played more like a love letter to the Richard Donner films you know forgetting to actually stand on his own two feet uh, you had a borderline Superman stalker in that film you know I was, I was always uncomfortable with him scanning the house with Lois Lane inside I thought mm, what's going on behind his borderline it's like a bright burn film for, for a second but so I was, I was interested in how the direction would go and I thought the casting of Henry was was a good one, and yeah, I was, I was quite I was quite intrigued. I was, I was really excited for when it when it came out. You know, I completely forgot that Superman Returns existed until you mentioned it there. <laughs> it's easy to. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was too bad. I thought she quite enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I really I really liked Brandon Ralph as Superman as well. I thought he was cracking, but I'm, I'm with Ross. I just don't like it. I, mean, I think part of the problem with it was it did the same thing that uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D did. Or Texas Chainsaw, sorry, to give it its proper name. Um, where they try and say it's a direct sequel, but the timeline doesn't make any sense. No. And that always strikes me as really cynical when we do that. It's like, if it is going to be a direct sequel, just set it in the 1980s, you know? I just didn't buy uh, Kate Bosworth as Lois Lane. You know, if she was supposed to be the Margaret Kidder character, then I thought she was too too nice to be in that role. And I also didn't buy the massive plot all that she was pregnant. I mean, if if she if this is following from Superman two, where when Superman two kissed her and her memory goes, and then Superman disappears for ten years or whatever, and she finds out she's pregnant, at what time did in her life did she question when did I have sex with Superman? <laughs> That's a very good point. Never thought of that. Um, I quite liked the whole bit of the end, you know, he's like lifting the island. I like to think that um, certain Mr. Whedon saw that and then thought, maybe I can make the Avengers do this at a later date. Yeah, true. But, but James, James, right, thought Brandon is brilliant in there. He's, 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 he's actually really good. And I'm glad he managed to reprise the role later on in the in the Flash TV show. But yeah, it, it was too much of a love letter, and he actually forgot to be his own film. But there is some good elements in it, you know. Uh, Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor was pretty good as well. Best a forgettable and bland film, just like you said, David. You've totally forgot about it. Whereas I suppose of Man of Steel, Man of Steel is, a, is it's it's a difficult movie to feel indifferent to. Like personally, I really hated Man of Steel. I thought like it was so joyless. And its overly serious tone meant that the, the the coincidences the plot relied upon were really, really glaring. Um, like, for instance, Lois reaching the, the Fortress of Solitude at the same time that Kalel did, right? And you can let a sillier film get away with that because you go, well, it's just you know, it's a comic, it's a comic, it's doing a kind of comic thing, it's okay, and it, or like you know, it's an adventure. Whereas because this took itself so seriously, I couldn't look past that. You know, I think the um, the serious tone of it is really unusual because like Superman's usually like, you know, here's your your symbol of hope, right? And we're going, nah, I tell you what, we're going to make him a flying Batman, basically. Where I will give the movie credit is uh, from the get-go, they established world-threatening stakes. You know, there's an apocalyptic scale that they achieve quite convincingly by the end of the film, you know, with uh, when Zod comes down. But I thought Zod... I didn't... Zod shouldn't have been the bad guy in the piece on the grounds that, like, just in terms of his motivation, for me, his motivation was actually quite a noble motivation. 
But then they had to sort of force this weird position where he suddenly goes, oh, I'm just going to kill all the humans as well. You know? <laughs> Rather, it's not about uh, trying to preserve the... Um, uh, the, what are they, they're not called kryptonites. What are, they, what are they all called from Krypton? Kryptonians. Kryptonians, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we need to preserve the Kryptonians. And, um, you know, it's like, it's Superman's dad is like, fuck that, right? I, you know, I'm going to give the codex to my, to, to, uh, my son and send him into space. Like, I, you know, I, I think there was quite a, quite a kind of a, a noble cause on Zod's side, but he, but he just ended up becoming the cartoon villain by the end of it. Is anyone else <laughs> uh, I, I guess the, the beginning sets him up to be, you know, kind of single-minded in his view of how the way sh- things should be run. I, I mean, it's a good 20 or so minutes that we establish what's happening on Krypton and why it's coming to its end and so on. So I think that by that point, it does show you that he, he is just, uh, you know, got the one goal in mind, um, trying to preserve the way Krypton's run. And obviously, you've got Jor-El who thinks that it should be more like uh, an Earth society, really. His thing's more of it, we've had our chance, we've got to let ourselves die out, he says at one point. Like, he's basically wishing for the death of his own people. Uh, I, I took it from the way of the way they lived as opposed to, you know, their actual... Um, people, because uh, everything's predetermined, isn't it? Even before the children are grown or whatever it is they do uh, with those Genesis chambers, everything's predetermined. They're assigned their life, and in in their complacency is basically what's brought them to their demise. So I, that's why he sends in elsewhere to hopefully get the Kryptonian people eventually on a better path, I suppose, which is why he's got the codex with him, isn't he? That's, that's just how I interpret it anyway. And for, for what it's worth, Man of Steel is probably my favourite Superman film as well. Out of all time, or? Yeah, out of all of them, yeah. I just, I, I just did a pin job. <laughs> <laughs> is it what you're such a fan of with Man of Steel? I, it probably is its more serious tone. I just as as much as I like the original Christopher Reeve one, they're probably just a bit too bubblegum for me. Um, a bit too happy and shiny. Um I, I think I prefer you know, the what if Superman was around today. How would people react to that? How would governments react? Because in the you know, the original films, probably in the comics and that as well. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, all right, yeah, cool. It's you know, he's gonna be by our side and always helping us. But yeah, like in Man of Steel, it's you know, there's always a what if. What if he turns against us? What if he isn't the good guy? Um, and I I do like that approach to it. I find it more interesting for a start. How about yourself, Ross? Were you were you much of a fan of Man of Steel? I thought it was a good starting ground for what should have followed. You know, it, was a, it, it put the stepping stones in place for a, a good little bright future. I like the fact, of course, that it's, like I said, it was different to the last film. Zack Snyder clearly thought they'd just go for it. There's massive plot holes like it is in many of the films it's going to follow. Uh, but I think the biggest problem for Man of Steel is, is that they didn't have a Man of Steel tool. Mm. I think that is the 
biggest complaint I got of the film because of DC's need to rush these things where they should have done a Man of Steel then maybe a Batman film with Ben Affleck and then a Man of Steel to to give Henry Cavill's uh, chance to grow as Superman uh, I think that there was here I mean it was all in place there were some really good action scenes obviously you on about Zod is no term and stamp sorry Jim but you know there's only one there's only one Zod in my eyes and yeah I, I quite enjoy it for, a, for what it is I mean it's a three stars for me no matter what and I just thought yeah it was, an, it, was an, it was room there for it to grow I agree on the fact that we should have had more of these characters before they decided to go for the you know big super team up because I really really like Henry Cable as Superman I think he is the best person to wear the cape and I would have liked to have seen a lot more of him before his you know, fleeting glimpse in the Justice League. I think what Snyder done well was he established the characters. You know, he, he, he got rid of the, the origin tale. He cast some brilliant people in these roles. You could, from watching this back then, you could taste the excitement of what was going to follow, what could mm. have come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the difficult part is, you know, they, they somehow made everyone believe that uh, that a man can fly again, but also a new Superman can exist apart from the Donna version. And all they had to do was make sure that the next film leapt over Torville Dins with a single bounce, you know. And sadly, they just they just didn't do that. I think something I would like to see more of was um, the life of Superman in it. There was a lot of stuff at the beginning that I think could have been significantly reduced and I think the last section could have been significantly reduced as well because like when the final fight starts we've still got like 40 minutes of the movie left right and I, I think there's a lot of bits where you see you see interesting ideas like hey what if Superman was at school right you've got all these scenes that I think show a potential that's just not quite there it hangs together almost like a greatest hits package or like a or in fact not, not, not like a greatest hits package you know when TV shows do those um those episodes that are like clip shows. I think yeah. a lot of Man of Steel watched like that, you know, where it's like, oh, I remember a time that this happened and you've got like a flashback, but I'm like, okay, it doesn't add up to anything coherent here. It doesn't add up to something whole. With um, And with the last fight, like, it was quite impressive. I said I applaud it for having an apocalyptic scale already and I do applaud it for the... Uh, taking the time to show that people are scared shitless, which is in a nice contrast to Marvel, you know, who don't. But at the same time, it did start to resemble the uh, the, the Peter fights for chicken bits from Family Guy. You know, just how... <laughs> just, just how, uh, how, like, how, how, how relentless it all was, you know? The problem was with the Man of Steel is, and it's probably for any future Superman, Superman films is the fact that it suffers from the viewer knowing way too much of the character and the storyline. You know, it's hard to even offer anything new now to the table when the whole legacy of Superman is built in our brain. And what Snyder, you know, what Snyder done was he he made a film which was loud, with sheer bangs, which was not as good as the 1970 original, but it's probably a much better spectacle. I'll give it this. Hans Zimmer's soundtrack was amazing. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. That you know, I think that is probably part of the reason why it's my favourite. Every time I watch it, I'm, that is probably fifty percent of what is you know keeping me hooked whilst I'm watching it. It probably gives it a whole extra star. I think something that all of these DC films do show, 
whether it's through their successes or their failures is the important of of present importance of presentation. You know, like where you have a good composer, you know, where you have, uh, you know, where you have uh, appropriate use or inappropriate use of slow motion, you know, where you have a filter on your action. And uh, I think for that one, I, I find it hollow, but technically, abs technically it was really impressive. Um, and I feel that about quite a few of these. Um, that'll, that'll be a recurring motif. Um, let's move on though to Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Oh, when you guys heard that Batman and Superman would be coming together to duke it out, what did you think? Well, being a massive Batman fan at this point, um, it was pretty much a dream country. Uh, I was absolutely chomping at a bit to see this film. And the more trailers that were released, the more info we got about it, the more it was looking brilliant. Wonder Woman was added to it. We saw Doomsday was going to be there. Um, obviously, we've got Lex Luthor in there as well. I mean, everything seemed to be coming together to be this potentially perfect film, for, for, from my point of view at least. But you know, I'm not going to deny I was initially disappointed by it, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I still think it's a genuinely good film, and as time's gone on, I actually like it a bit more than I did when I first saw it. Um, but yeah, coming out of the cinema, there, there was a bit of you know heavy hardness. Um, there's no denying it was messy, but especially the final 30, 40 minutes. You know, as great as it is having Wonder Woman join the fray and kicking ass with the rest of them, they were just fighting a big orc, basically. <laughs> so, you know, Doom Doomsday was quite a disappointing villain, really. Um, it just a bit of a CGI mess. But up to that point, I did enjoy most of it. I, I don't think there was enough... Batman in it. There's lots of Bruce Wayne, which is fine. Um, and Ben Affleck really suits the role, if you ask me. I think he's just as good as anyone else who's taken it on. Oh, 100%. I think he was, I think he's great. Um, but there wasn't enough Batman for me. The best we got was at towards the, um, just before the uh, big dust up with Doomsday, where he's saving Martha. Um, he's in that warehouse taking out all the villains, and that was beautiful it just reminded me of playing the arkham asylum games it was mm. great the way he picks them all off and you know, bursts through the wall that sort of thing i love that for me you know you can't have it throughout the entirety of the film i would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that side of the dark knight yeah i think i think that's absolutely fair um i mean i reckon like when i first heard about it i'm a bat i'm more of a batman fan than a superman fan and uh, so i thought all right that's cool and then, you know, you hear, okay, well, Affleck's going to be Batman struck me as good casting, you know? And absolutely fair play too, uh, good old Batfleck. He does both the parts of Bruce Wayne and Batman very well, unlike, say, with Christian Bale, where, you know, I think you got probably with Christian Bale a stronger Bruce Wayne than you do a Batman. It's safe that Michael Keaton's the opposite, where Michael Keaton, I think, excels as... Uh, excels as Bruce by Bruce by finding less convincing as Batman. What about yourself, Ross? What did you make of uh, Batman versus Superman? Well, when I found out that there was going to be a Batman versus Superman film, obviously I was very, very excited and I wanted to be there 
you know, the first in the queue on, on opening night, which I was. I went to the midnight show in, and it's probably one of the most strangest atmospheres I've ever witnessed. And were, were, people, were people dressed up? It was. Uh, I, I listened to those queuing up, and it seemed everyone had heard of the bad reviews. I mean, it, it, it was during the week, it started filtering through, you know, and I was getting some really, really bad, you know, press. And I was quite excited when I, when I was walking in there. I, I tried to ignore the any reviews by watching films. I like to make my own personal judgment. I was absolutely delighted when Ben Affleck was announced as Batman, even though I expected Matt Damon to turn up as Robin in some parts. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember sitting in that queue. I'm going in that queue. You know, I even joined in by choose, choosing a Batman cup of Coke instead of the Man of Steel cup and getting into a small little argument to who's the best, you know, superhero. But um, I, oh man, I I really don't like this film. I honestly don't, and I apologize to all DC fans. One of the things I said to my mate when I went to see it, I hope we do not see Batman Batman's parents die again. We do not need that scene. And of course, I, and, I, and he said, "What happens if it does?" I said, "Well, maybe I should. I'm going to leave." <laughs> and <laughs> ten minutes in, what about five five minutes in? What do we have? We have that scene again, and we have that ridiculous moment where young Bruce Wayne is floating up the bat to carrying him up. That imagery, and I knew from that moment that this film is going to be an absolute disaster. You couldn't accuse Snyder of being a subtle filmmaker. Yeah, uh, but you, what you don't, I know, but maybe Snyder's, especially towards Batman, so much his imagery wouldn't work because Batman's supposed to be dark and gritty. Something a quite a nice little in joke that I enjoy is, uh, you know, in Watchmen where you've got the beginning with the times we are a changing song, right? And uh, in that bit, you you have an attempted murder on Batman's parents being stopped, and I thought that was cool. Yes, yeah. It worked hard to find a credible reason for Batman and Superman to be fighting, and I think the. A disagreement they had was good you know like you've got uh, Batman's got a very good reason to think alright well you know what if this guy loses it one day you know what if what if this guy kills us all you know he's already caused severe collateral damage in a war that you know essentially he brought to this he brought to the planet right and uh, then you know you're going okay well He's got a personal stake in this. People, people for his team died. You know, he, he knew people who died in that. And then you know, you've got like the, all the politicians are scared of Superman. So I quite enjoyed that from Batman's perspective. It totally made sense that he would hate this guy. And this, I guess, it's the kind of dynamic that Marvel's been working with for a bit as well. You know, where you have like with the Hulk in uh, Age of Ultron, and also with. Um, with Wanda as well, like, you know, is it, is it okay to, in um, Iron Man 3, sorry, Captain America 3, you know, the sort of thing of, is it okay to have these people that potentially could destroy tons of uh, buildings, kill lots of people if they just lose it one day, you know? Like with Wanda, you've basically got a, a nuclear weapon in a dress, right? And uh, with Batman versus Superman, you know, Batman's like, all right, well, here's a nuclear weapon in... Uh, in tights, you know, I, I was totally on board with that, and also like you know, Bat Superman sort of thing of like you know, who the fuck does this guy think he is? You know, and <laughs> um, it worked very well to build up their fight, and then when they do fight, it was over too quickly. Lots and lots of foreplay 
<laughs> the fights last about five minutes, and then you've got the silly Marfa bit, which, you know, I mean, we don't really need to say too much on that. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a strange yeah. thing that makes Batman suddenly reconsider his entire philosophy towards crime. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's why they did those opening credits. I mean, everyone knows Batman's deal about his parents at this point. I'm guessing that's why they're reiterating it over these little dream sequences in the opening credits, just to make that probably seem a little less goofy. But it, mm. you know, I don't think there's any patching over that. But what what strikes me, I think the worst. I mean, the worst part for the film for me is it's everything up until the Martha part is all premeditated by Lex Luthor. Literally every little, you know, card in this house of cards has been placed there by Luther. He has orchestrated the whole thing down to the smallest detail. And I know he's meant to be some really super intelligent villain, but that's one of the things that just didn't kind of sit well with me. It's everything's too convenient. Um, but for the most part, what I did see of it, I enjoyed. And going back to Batman being, you know, on on the back foot with Superman, that is probably one of my favourite little plots I've seen in many different DC properties. Um, always having a contingency plan just in case he does do the worst. Like you, you've got that little uh, dream sequence with the nightmare Batman, uh, where you, you've got the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh, there's two sides, obviously, Superman and then the little band of rebels which Batman's with. That was really good. Um, I would have loved to have seen more of that, to be fair. But yeah, everything about that little aspect of those two, I find great. But just It just was a bit too sloppy getting to it, really. I just think in this film, Ben Affleck nails the role. Uh, this bit part of that film where, especially when he in the fight scenes towards the end, when he's fighting all the bad guys, that it actually feels like, you know, the rock star video games, you know, that kind of imagery. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know. yeah, with the Batmobile as well, yeah. That was, yeah brilliant, that was honestly, and I was swept away by that, and I was thinking, yeah, it's a big, massive scope, but I just think this, this the entire film is badly written. One, we needed a Man of Steel 2 beforehand, because we've gone from Lois and Clark just getting to know each other, then this film with Shannon Bath. I mean, where, where, you know, where does plot development come from? You know, and I just think Batman is so badly written. I mean, you've got some scenes where he's conflicted, you know, he's either in a stage of his life but he has lost everyone around him and is now disregarding his own values, which would have been fine, but there are some scenes he's more assertive and still shows he cares. You know, the film can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. Having a conflicted and world-weary Batman who apparently has lost his Robin would have been fine and may have taken us and the viewer in a whole new direction. But when it comes to actually trying to defeat Batman, he then suddenly shows us compassion, and by the end of the film, he's trying to set up a Justice League. I mean... (laughs) You know, considering he spent the majority of the film branding his victims, which makes him more vigilante, and most probably losing the sport of long-term Ali Jim Gordon, the sudden change in the last act does not make any sense whatsoever. And if it's because of that, and if it's because of the Martha moment, then it's even more ridiculous. But I will say, and he has, he gets a lot of criticism, is uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. I think, he, I think he's good in this. I like that he's just so out of sync with everyone else. 
he plays it differently. He's good, but again, he's badly written because I is yeah, he's behind the scenes, which is great, but it's the overall concept of his evil master plan. And this is a guy now who's supposed to be very intelligent. Doesn't make any sense, right? Now Lex wanted to Batman to kill Superman, but why? Did he really need Batman to get involved? Did he want them both to kill each other? Now, we know that Batman was closed in on his dirty deeds, but did Lex not actually know that? You know, the trouble we have this, the, as the audience is that uh, we we such in the dark over the general scheme of things. It's like all we need to know was Lex wants them to fight. But why? See, I agree with you on that. I, I guess I went with the idea that he probably, he probably thought, all right, well, you know, worst case scenario, one of them kills the other. Best case scenario, they both kill each other. The thing that I didn't get was what he possibly wanted to do with Doomsday. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Lex had the kryptonite and the knowledge that he could have Superman. So why did he need Batman? Bringing the Cape Crusader into this just results in his own downfall. I so mean, surely he thought that what would happen. Surely, surely he must have thought that Superman was more likely to batter Batman. Yeah, yeah, but by, by getting rid, but then he creates Doomsday. So by getting rid of one unstoppable four, he creates another. What's this, Mega Mind? Yeah, no, that, that that was 4D chess. That was. So if, if Batman had killed Superman, then how would have Lex controlled his creation? You know, he couldn't have. Which stems just why having such a brilliant comic book creation as an afterthought is just a waste of time. Much like the treatment Bane was given in Batman and Robin. Yeah, it's, it's just. I think a lot of it's probably down to fan service at the end of the day, isn't it? Um, but we we did get Wonder Woman. So, yeah, that yeah, was not all bad. That was cool as hell. Her entrance with the uh, the, the Wonder Woman theme playing in the background. Yeah, it got me hyped. I mean. As you say, what an introduction! Like jumping down with his shield, stopping Batman basically getting annihilated, and then you've got that amazing like riff over the top, which it turns out is actually played on a cello oh, <laughs> using shit. pedals. Yeah, right. um, and yeah, like, I think if you've got one major plus point to come out of that is the excellent Wonder Woman theme. This is absolutely true. That, that was probably the best part of the film. But uh, before we scoff to another one, let me just say, this is, I found a bit of my notes. Why did everyone think Superman killed all those bad guys in Africa? I mean, they were all shot. Does it look like Superman is again? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. It, Very good seems, it seems that nobody really trusts Superman. So why did they build him yeah. a freaking statue? <laughs> yeah, they had to appease him. <laughs> they thought we're nice to him. Because the thing, the thing is, this film could have just been called Rorschach versus Dr. Manhattan with the way that the characterization was done in it, you know? And Superman Aye, was just... basically just, you know, he's apathetic. He's, he's everyone's suspicious of him. You know, he's kind of above the whole thing. At least there was uh, less free hanging junk if it was Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like Wonder Woman yeah it's arrival and that scene the final fight is brilliant I mean, it's one of the best I, that, was, that was highlight at 3 o'clock in the morning in the cinema when 55 people already left by then and me and my mate are sad <laughs> and still sitting there but why is Wonder Woman so concerned about a photo no one knows her <laughs> you know would anyone have joined the dots by looking at an old photo and seeing someone who looks like her her own presence around the place brings the much unwanted attention 
you know, there was no need for her to be in this movie. None whatsoever. No, I've, I've got to say, I didn't even realise it was Chris Pine and Ewan Bremner in there. Until, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> until the uh, Wonder Woman film. But the final thing that nails it for me, and the most silliest, stupidest moment I've ever in comic book history, a uh, comic book film history, is since when is Gotham and where Superman lives so close together? I mean, there's a river separating, mm. you know, the Daily Planet and Gotham. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, it's it's very convenient, isn't it? I mean, I'm not really hot on my DC geography, um, but yeah, that that was way too convenient. Well, surely Superman can fly. You see the bat signal, so we go and help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not saying really, but with serious tone, in some ways, making it seem sillier is um, why nobody recognizes Superman when he's got his glasses off. Because in the older ones, it's fine. I'm willing to buy your reality, but people just simply don't realise it because Clark Kent's a buffoon. Whereas Clark Kent's basically a blank slate in these ones. And the reality they create, it just seems silly that no one recognises him. It also seems silly that with this, again, this realistic depiction of him, it also seems kind of silly that Clark Kent, with absolutely no experience, can walk into a job at a uh, global (laughs) newspaper. (laughs) You know, um... Small things. Actually, one last small thing before we move on to Suicide Squad, right, is um, I thought the casting of uh, Jeremy Irons in it was terrible. Jeremy Irons is a very good actor, <laughs> but he, the, the age difference between him and Ben Affleck is not, like, it's like 19 years, right? So I don't buy that he could have been bottling for his father. You know, the <laughs> idea that, like, he, he watched Superman grow up. Sorry, Batman grow up. Like, how... So, yeah, that bothered me. I thought, good actor, too too young for the role. Or at least needed a bit more makeup. Um, folks, speaking of makeup, let's go on to uh, Suicide Squad. What did people think of Suicide Squad? Ross, you first. Have you seen Suicide Squad? I actually like it. Surprise, yeah. surprise. I actually really do like it. I think it's a good little... Yeah, it's got massive plot flows like all the other films. But there's a lot of good energy to this to this movie. Uh, obviously, a certain character steals the entire show. I think we all know who we're talking about here. Uh, Harley Quinn. Uh, I mean, she's obviously fantastic in the role, isn't she? And yeah, I, I mean, after the day, after the bitter aftertaste of Batman vs. Superman, this is the kind of film that I needed in my life especially in the DC universe, and it nailed everything for me. It's not perfect, as I said, but, yeah, I can't, you know, I'm looking forward to the next one. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about, at the end of this, after after we've gone through Justice League, I thought we'd finish up on uh, on a bit about the future of DC, if there is to be a future of DC. Um, good. Uh, what about yourself, Jim? Do you like this one? I thought it was dire. I was really rooting for it. And the fact that you had little cameos from Batman and the really, really god awful Jared Leto Joker, uh, even that, I, I was still looking forward to it. But uh, it's really missed the mark for me. It just wasn't a very good film. Um, I've only watched it the once, which would have been probably when it first came out to rent. I actually paid money to watch it, which I really regret. And <laughs> yeah, as you say, Harley Quinn's probably the best thing to come out of it. Uh, I didn't mind um, Deadshot, Will Smith's character, um, but I just 
I just thought it was a, more of a mess than Batman versus Superman, to be fair. Uh, personally, I really liked your presentation on it. I thought the um, it still had a bit of darkness. You know, it reminded you of these people have obviously done bad things. So it didn't avoid that, but it was a much more kind of uh, like a fun presentation style that they used in it. And I, think, and I, I thought that worked for it. Uh, the thing that pissed me off, though, was like, they seem to have this um, approach of if we put popular songs on, then it'll be cool, because that's what we did with <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. They're watching going, okay, so at one point you, know, you have uh, Black Sabbath, then that's then uh, Paranoid is almost immediately followed up by you've got the uh, White Stripes at that point, Seven Nation Army, you've got Eminem, a, a guess who's back, that one, uh, without me, and then you have Spirit in the Sky, right? And you're like, hold on. These are four songs that do not have the same vibe as each other at all. <laughs> and the film's just resembling a series of music videos at this point. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's uh, it's in a way quite cool to have them all together. But it just sort of made the film just feel like a collection of bits. Which is a shame because, like, there was some good bits. I, I've, I saw the extended cuts. I don't know how much of it was added, but... The scene where they're all hanging around in the bar, for me, was the best part of the film. Because it was a bit where you got to know the characters a wee bit more, you know, mm. rather than just sort of being like characters in music videos. Uh, that's pretty much the only part I remember, to be fair. Uh, other than a few little snippets where you've got, uh, you know, these his remin- uh, dead shots reminiscing about being apprehended by Batman. Um, but it's just really unmemorable for me. Uh, obviously, there was. Uh, Cara Delevingne's villain that was just, I can't remember the name, it's that forgettable. The, uh, the Enchantress. <laughs> and we didn't really get to know anything about her because we never see her outside of the uh, dramatic monologue scenes and stuff at the beginning, mm. you know. Like we, we, like, we didn't get any scenes where she, wa- where she wasn't, like, well, you've got the one bit where she's being introduced by Viola Davis. Um, but we didn't. But we didn't get to know her. She was just, you know, there to do her thing in the scene while Viola Davis gave exposition, and uh, that bothered me because, like, it would come to the end of it where she's she's boring. Yeah, she's unremarkable. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the what brought it down for me a little bit more was at this point you've got an established DC TV universe which are doing it ten times better. Mm. Yeah, they actually introduced us to say squad in Arvo, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I think the only other thing I've got of note here is for a theme. Sorry, for for one of the themes is about them coming together as a team, right? But they didn't fight as a team very very much. They mostly just sort of stood there and shot, or like one of them would do something, the others just stand watching them, right? So it just you know, you didn't have like an Avengers or actually. Uh, with at least the Snyder Justice League, which we'll come to in a wee bit, you know, they fight as a team in that, which Suicide Squad just didn't. It it, it didn't feel like they had that uh, kind of synchronicity between the characters. And uh, that, I thought, really let it down. Um, The acting, I think, really elevated material. You know, Viola Davis is great in it. Will Smith was really great in it. You know, Margot Robbie was really great in it. Like... um, I I wasn't huge in Jared Leto in it, but he was 
doing something different, I suppose. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I admire they've tried to go a different route. I mean, how do you follow up Heath Ledger, to be fair? But, you know, there's going a different direction and there's going completely the opposite way. It just didn't work. So I remember thinking, like, I thought the logic for a lot of this would have been Man of Steel bombed, and then Batman versus Superman also bombed, and they presumably went, let's try and make a film that's a bit like what the other guys are doing. Yeah. And then that's, that's all we got. Well, so, Ross, anything you want to say in the film's defence? I don't think it's as bad as, you know, Jim's making out, or... It's deeply frustrating for me, you know. I'm not. I, I'm not ashamed to say that I've been such a fan of the Dark Knight that Batman vs Superman scarred me a little. You know, even rewatching the Steelbook edition, you know, that was released, I found it even worse in the comfort on my own home. You know, while Suicide Squad is not the redemption I was hoping for, it also weren't the final line in the coffin that many were suggesting. Uh, suggesting it's a deeply flawed and at times a brainless superhero romp that will entertain just as much as you know, just as much as make you angry. But, you know, the younger generation would be more than transfixed by the arse of Robbie. Well, that's older <laughs> folk, you know, well, that's older folk would probably vex a little and hope that Wonder Woman, which was coming next, would actually be the saviour of the DC universe. But there, there, there's room here. There's some really good set pieces. Uh, yeah, the ending was more like the Ghostbusters remake, you know, CGI Overlord, which mostly grated me than anything else. But... For me, Margaret Robbie just steals the film and that's the watch, worth the watch alone because, you know, Harley Quinn, which everyone's been looking forward to seeing as a live character, she, she, she she's just perfect in the role. She really is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's maybe a bit of a problem with the kind of anti-arc nature of it because I think Warner's probably wanted to shy away from essentially depicting an abusive relationship with the with the hero. So they were like, okay, well... We're going to cut back some of the Joker stuff. The thing is, the movie ends, if people have been gathered by now, we're doing full spoilers for all of these. And the movie basically ends with uh, the Joker coming in to rescue her. right? So it's like, well, what are we supposed to have got is what she learned from the whole experience. You know, she she learns to do the right thing to an extent here. She's like, oh, I should probably... I should probably, like, you know, uh, look out for other people for worth saving and so on. It didn't gel with me. As someone who's so obviously as a, as unambiguously bad as a Joker swoops in, and then she's like grinning away, and you're like, she's learned nothing from the experience. So that's a flawed character more than anything on it. That's mostly to do with you know, uh, how can I say as the right word, how damage of a of a of a character she is. You know, no matter what she learns as a Joker, the level of life. If he turns up, she's going with him, and she's going to follow him anywhere. I guess I was just hoping she'd have had her. I believe he called her fantabulous emancipation during that film. At the time when I watched this, I, I, I thought, oh, that's a step up from either of the two Snyder ones. In hindsight, I, I probably like Batman v Superman better than it. However, the film seemed a lot worse after I saw the next one, which is Wonder Woman. I loved Wonder Woman. I thought this was a brilliant film. I thought the, uh, the chemistry between uh, Gal Gadot and uh, Chris Pine was, you know, there is a very charming love plot that it had. The world building, I think, was excellent. And, uh, you know, the attention to detail was very good. I liked the humour of it a lot. And uh, I thought the action scenes were really well done, you know. The, the use of bullet time there justified the kind of slow motion fetish. And finally, for me, it really earned its emotional stakes. There's a really good bit of character growth going on. 
when when uh, Pinescarter died, I was gutted in it as well. Like I thought that I, I thought that was really really well done. So yeah, for me this is by some distance before either Justice League. This is the uh, the best of the first four uh, DC films. Yeah, I think mm. I agree. I think I agree with you there. Uh, it, it it felt a bit like I think I mentioned Superman Returns earlier. You know that. This felt like the world of which Adonna created. You know, you had that alleyway scene, which was probably similar to Clark Kent and Lois Lane in 1978. I think it helps that it was directed by a female, Patty Jenkins, because uh, she gave Wonder Woman, you know, a different angle, what could I say? You know, she's more of a leader, more of a presence. And yeah, I, th- I think you just summed that up perfectly. I, th- I think Wonder Woman is quite a strong, strong film. Um, and looking forward to her, uh, she's got Star Wars coming up. She's doing Rogue Squadron. Yes, she is, yes. How about yourself, Jim? Um, I think it's the only film I've been to see four times at the cinema, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> should give you some indication how much I enjoyed it. Probably at the time it was my all-time favourite superhero movie. It's just so different to the other DC ones for a start, although I think, most of that is down to feedback from the previous ones. Like the, the underlying message for this one really is, you know, love is going to save us more than anything. Um, but yeah, like everyone in it was so good. I don't think I've seen Chris Pine in anything better. His little speech towards the end as he's trying to explain just the nature of men to her, that, really moved me um but yeah the whole thing was just such a ride uh, as you say it starts in Finiscara getting to know her getting to know how she's been brought up and then the war is brought to them and then you see them go from there to no man's land um getting caught up in it it's just so good the way it all develops along and you know she gets to see what people are like for you know at first hand um it's just a really really brilliant film and such a departure from pretty much any of the other superhero films i'd seen at the time um nowadays though you know having a daughter who has watched that film probably every day for many many <laughs> months at one point you know you, you do get fed up of seeing it after a while but yeah it's still an absolute classic um definitely for, for me you know I, I really love man of steel as well but i would say that just pips it for being the best of the pre-justice league dc films so. hey i think we're in a, in a state all in a state of agreement here i think the comedy in it was so well done as well like there's a lot of good fish out of water stuff i guess it's the way that you can make wonder woman go to both a goddess but you can also make her quite vulnerable as well, you know? Hmm. I think, um, as you're saying about her learning about uh, what humans are like, I enjoyed when she's saying, okay, you know, all of these people are possessed by Ares, you know, we need to go off. <laughs> yeah. As long as we can kill Ares. And and I, I just thought that bit was so well done, you know, when he's like, look, this isn't what it's about here, you know? This, this isn't, you know, your point of reference doesn't work to explain this world. Yeah, I mean, like, just every, every time, like, as I said, I've seen it, tons of times now but every every time just that bit i still always get the hairs on the back of my neck stood on in these it's just such a great moment um as i said i can't think of another film i've seen chris pine where he's that seems that invested and that committed to 
that role. It's just incredible. Uh, was the soundtrack was it um, was it Hans Zimmer again? Um, no, it was Rupert Gregson Williams this oh. time. Um, it was fantastic. But, uh, for for a lot of it, we just get teased with that theme until we finally get over the trenches at no man's land. Mm. And then it's like, you know, fuck it. Let's batter some Germans. And you know, they're in that room and she's, you know, basically taking them all on. They're all, they've all got their guns, but she's just kicking their asses. And she punts that guy through the window. Brilliant stuff. Absolutely brilliant. So this brings us towards the, uh, towards the justice league ones. Folks, we were basically wanting to, wanting to cover the pre justice league ones, but just before we reach justice league with the, would be like, oh, we'll just fucking start Justice League. But RV, RV, of the other ones, there uh, was it Aquaman, Harley Quinn, and mm. um, uh, Shazam, and Wonder Woman 1984. Are you, are, are any of these ones particularly good for you guys? I've not seen any of them, so I can't comment. Like all of them are good in their own way. I mean, I would say Aquaman and Shazam are probably the weakest of those ones, personally. Um, I mean, both start off brilliantly, but kind of lose the way uh, as, as we go towards, you know, typical big dust-up at the end. Um, Shazam probably is better than Aquaman for me because there's a lot of wish fulfillment in there. I mean, if if I was watching that at 10 years old, that would probably have been the best film I'd ever seen. I mean, who doesn't dream of becoming... Uh, you know, big mighty superhero when they're, you know, a, a young kid. Mm. Um, and he can turn it off and on at will. And then at the end, he's got his brothers and sisters in on it as well. Uh, you know, as a kid, that that would have been so good for me. But it, it does kind of, you know, it kind of lulls here and there. It's, it's probably the lightest of the DC films as well, but I think it's because it's aimed at a younger audience as well. Um, Aquaman has got massive sci-fi vibes about it, but I, I think it just suffers from being too long. Uh, it's got too much going on, and by the time you get to the big dust-up at the end, I'm, you know, I've kind of passed caring. Although, you know, there are people riding sharks, so you've got that room for it. <laughs> um, the Birds of Prey movie. That is fantastic. That is probably, um, yeah, uh, probably not quite as good as Wonder Woman 84, in my opinion, but it's it's a cracking film, and I can watch it. Every time it's on uh, TV, I'll sit and watch it. I enjoy it. It's a great time. Ewan McGregor is a fantastic villain, absolutely camping it up and chewing the scenery on there. You, you can tell he's having a blast doing that. Uh, he's plays an absolute arsehole, and he's rushing every second of it. And Wonder Woman 84, that was great. I enjoyed it. It, it kind of played out more of a mystery movie than a superhero one. Uh, we, we didn't really get as many, you know, big epic superhero fight moments as uh, any of the previous films. But I enjoyed seeing the relationship between Diana and Steve again. And again, Chris Pine knocking it out of the park again, if you ask me. Um, and Pedro Pascal played, a, I suppose he's, he is the villain of the piece, but he's, you know, he's, he's not a one-dimensional villain, so mm. he has got a lot of sympathy uh, for me, anyway. And it was great seeing Kristen Wiig branch out into this sort of thing as well. I, I thought she made a good villain too. Uh, again, not a one-dimensional baddie. Everyone had their own layers. It was great. 
And don't be so frost. Have you seen any of those ones? It's amazing how me, me and Jim are so different, right? Uh, <laughs> I agree with Shazam. I think it's one of the best DC films of recent times. It's uh, much like Jim said, you know, if I watched that when I was 10 years old, it probably would be my favourite superhero film. It's such a joy. You should watch it, David. Honestly, it's really, really good. Uh, Aquaman, I think it's up there with Wonder Woman. It's a, it's a brilliant starting point for that character. And I never found, I went in, I went in, didn't quite fancy it, and I came out blown away by it. But as for Wonder Woman 1984, oh my God, it's the worst film I've seen this year. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jim, but how can they get, how can they get it so wrong? I mean, you have Steve coming back, which is probably a severe case of deja vu. I mean, I got so bored towards the end because it, it was only leading one way. Uh, the problem with Wonder Woman 84 is that it overstays its welcome. It becomes bogged down with overplaying its many subplots. You know, it's basically a typical sequel in which it tried to go bigger and better, but failing to remind itself of what it, what we liked about it in the first place. You know, diehard fans will no doubt lavish the praise, mostly because of Wonder Woman herself, who deserves all the acclaim. But for many, oh, they will be so bitterly disappointed with it. I honestly, I went away so, so frustrated, and it hasn't been well. It hasn't been well received with the fans. So I think that sums it up, really. Did you see Birds of Prey? Yes, I've seen Birds of Prey. Uh yeah, this is quite good in it, as you quite rightly said. Uh, Irma Gregg is fantastic in it. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty good as well. That's a pretty good addition as well. And now, folks, for our feature presentation. So we are going to be talking all things Justice League. Yay! This, hey, <laughs> it's a story of uh, two very different directors with very different takes on the same material. Now, with uh, Joss Whedon, I'm going to try and be charitable here, which goes against my uh, nature a little bit. I'm sure we've all heard the alleged stories about Joss Whedon's behaviour on different movie sets for a period of decades. So, you know, I he's not a guy I particularly like for you of extending charity to here. He had an almost impossible task, which is we want you to make a different film out of this footage and to reshoot some sequences that you can add to the footage that you have, but make the film like a film that you previously made yourself. And that's an uphill battle on the half. So I believe the story was that the studio wanted to cut off about 90 minutes of content from Zack Snyder's one. Can you make this less than two hours? And uh, Snyder obviously, 
you know, it's something he's had a personal, a huge personal loss, like not you know, absolutely unimaginable loss. But it sounds that immerse himself in his work for a period of a couple of months, trying to avoid thinking about what happened to his daughter, and then realise he couldn't, he couldn't, and and quit and abandoned the project along with uh, his, uh, his wife, who's a producer. And uh, you know, I think coming into that project, knowing that you had seven months to get this ready for a cinema release, and it basically needed large reshoots. Whedon's record of superhero films, I think, is at best mixed. But at the same time, I uh, I reckon if he'd had full creative control over this, I don't think we I think we would have had something that's stronger than what we saw. That being said, there is a lot of stuff that's clearly his content in this that doesn't hugely work. I mean, firstly, actually, what do you guys think of Joss Whedon as a creative? Personally, I haven't seen, well, not consciously seen a lot of his stuff. Obviously, there's the Avengers films. Uh, Avengers Assemble at the time was incredible. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I feel that has got a bit weaker over the years, as has been bigger and better since. Uh, Age of Ultron is probably uh, my favorite superhero film of that era. Uh, I enjoy that much more than Avengers Assemble. And I think his only other feature film I've seen is Serenity, which again is a decent sci-fi flick. Um, And I've seen a few episodes of the TV show Firefly it's based on. And again, that's pretty good. But um, overall, not my cup of tea. Uh, I know he's been involved with a lot of other films, be it, you know, producer or writer. Um, It was Cabin in the Woods, one he was involved with. Yeah, he was writer in Cabin in the Woods, I believe. Yeah, that that was quite fun. Uh, although the only bit I remember about it is the Merman. I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is uh, a fantastic show. It was so popular for damn good reason, you know? Um, I think I agree with you with the Avengers. I wasn't huge in Avengers Assemble. I, I've, I think Age of Ultron is, in hindsight, a significantly stronger film than it. But I think, like, you know, what he has is a very different approach from Snyder. And I think with Zack Snyder, this is a guy who wants his heroes to be gods. And Joss Whedon doesn't. Joss Whedon wants his heroes to be just like you or I, but they happen to have, like, Mm. you know, a special suit or something, you know. I think one thing I will credit Joss Whedon's version of Justice League on, he makes the characters more vulnerable. Whereas I think with Snyder, Snyder is... uh, People used to laugh when they you've got a, the trailer for Watchmen. It comes up saying from visionary director Zack Snyder. Remember, people used to make jokes about it, right? But the thing is, Zack Snyder uh, is a fantastic uh, visualist. You know, I think he's got a really good uh, sense of framing. You know, he can make shots that look incredible. I just don't think he's got very much depth to what he does. Like if you listen to the commentary on the uh, Watchmen Blu-ray. You know, you've got these incredible shots in it. It's just Zack Snyder going, yeah, we did it that way because it looked cool, you know? <laughs> and, you know, fair enough, it does it does look really cool. But I don't think he makes relatable characters. I don't think he makes relatable films. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So, I mean, he's not just Stanley Kubrick, right? But at the same time, uh, I 
I think like it's a really strange pairing. I, yeah, I mean, going back to Joss, I know I hate when someone asks me, you know, what is my favourite film, because it's an impossible, you know, to answer. You know, for my undying love of Halloween, you know, I absolutely adore Die Hard with the same affection. But if someone asks me one of my top ten TV programs of all time, then it would include Buffy. Because Joss, for me, delivered such a perfect TV show. You know, it was written beautifully with a genuine heartbeat. The characters are fantastic. And to be fair, most people believe it's Wielden's best work. But then you've got Angel the spin-off, which is equally, or some would say, better than Buffy. Then, of course, he moved on to Firefly, which, sorry, Jim, is arguably a masterpiece. Cut off way before its prime. Uh, you know, I still heard thinking about that. But he did direct Serenity, you know, the film version, which is probably better than any of the recent Star Wars films. So when he's on form, I think Whedon is one of the best around. And I think it's got to be his own material as well. And he's a bit like, you know, well, I would say he's a bit like JJ. They both shared the same career paths. You know, JJ went from Lost to Alias to Fringe and then to Mission Impossible and Star Wars. But I think with Josh, he, he doesn't get that consistency. He hasn't that, that big, big film. And, but when he's on form and he's on consistent, he's really, really good. But then, of course, he did write Alien Resurrection, which killed the Ripley franchise. Oh, God, yeah. And I remember seeing his such a shit uh, reflection on that later where he's going, oh, the problem was all about the casting, you know, because the film would have been a masterpiece if Brad Dourif wasn't in it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, like, you're like, mate. Hey, Ripley fucks nailing at one point, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the thing that people don't like about it, you know? I think, I think Joss uh, works better when he's doing his own material. Mm-hmm. And I think him, bringing him in to do Justice League, I can see why they done it, because like, like you said, because of the Avengers background, but it didn't work. And oh my God, I hate this movie, but carry on. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's maybe part of it, that we thought, well, he's a logical choice because, you know, he's not like the sort of brooding Christopher Nolan stuff. He's not like the earlier uh, Zack Snyder ones here. You know, we need a bit of light in the darkness. I just think the thing is, it felt like a film that was made by committee. In fact, yeah, let's go to the juggler in this. What were your, what were your guys' overall impressions of the cinematic version of Justice League? Uh, Ross, you... <sighs> Really don't like this one, do you? Um, I hate this movie. I mean, I think it's quite possibly one of the worst superhero films of all time. And I'm sorry to say that. There's been many bad superhero films, but this tops the lot. You know, it makes the infamous never released, but everyone has seen it. Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four seem like a masterpiece. <laughs> If Canon films were still around, they would have been laughing out loud in 2017 <laughs> and screaming, and you thought that Superman 4 was a bad film? Yes, you know, The Man of Steel's Quest of Peace is an awful film, but there's such a delightful charm to it all. You know, you just can't take your eyes off it, but which Justice League 2017 just hasn't got. It's an absolute dire film. From the very first scene where we saw Henry's Superman reshot scene, you know, now I'm not even going to include the infamous CJ nor mustache look, but for me, it's the Joey Tribbiani moment. <laughs> I am talking about friends for a second. You know, that scene where Joey talks about how to smell a fart, an acting trick in which, if you forget your line, you put your mm. head up high and breathe in. <laughs> when the kid asks Superman, what is the best thing on planet Earth? Honestly, Cavell mimics that Joey move. You- <laughs> Fuck me off that we didn't see that question get answered. I thought, like... We'd have, like, the last shot of the film would be the end of a video or something. Oh, I, I mean, I mean, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Joey Tribbiani. It's, it's, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Honestly, I, where, where do I start with this? 
Table, we'll, 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 we'll dissect this in a few different sections in a, mo- in a moment, just to get a broad feeling on this. What about yourself, Jim? What was your broad view on this one? Initially, when I first saw it, I actually quite enjoyed it. I, I knew we weren't getting the full meal, so to speak. This was more the fast food version of Justice mm-hmm. League. And, you know, I was fine with that. Y- you could see the seams, couldn't you? You know, you knew what Joss Whedon well, for the most part, you knew what he'd added to it compared to what was already there. Um, but again, I, I let it pass because I've, it worked for me, personally. I enjoyed it. I liked what I saw. I didn't like that they'd got Danny Elfman in to do the music, however. I thought he'd, you know, he pretty much half-assed that, really. There's no two ways about it. Uh, so that put a bit of a dampener on it for me. But overall, at this point, you're accepting that these films are going to have shitty CGI baddies. You know, half of it's going to be animated. And, yeah, I've I've made my peace with that one before I'd even seen this. So those things weren't a detraction for me. And uh, despite its obvious reshoots and Cable's top lip, I still had a good time. And I thought it was good. Looking at it since seeing the Snyder Cut, yeah, like every every note I have written down about watching it is a negative. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the film was okay when I when I when I first saw it, which like when I say I first saw it, I mean this is like last week, right? I thought it was all right, but the thing was thinking about it later, like there's so much wrong with it in terms of like the way that they're introducing three new characters, for example, but you don't really get much context for any of them. Because this is the first time any of us have seen Flash. It's the first time any of us have seen Cyborg. It's the first time any of us have seen Aquaman. You know, outside of our little cameos in uh, Batman v Superman. I thought they, they were all kind of done a disservice by the narrative. Like, the, there was too much material to force this into a two-hour movie, you know? And it felt like the Justice League basically got sidelined in their own film, you know? And I mm. thought that aspect of it sucked. I thought the last act of it was really weak. Snyder Cut... Whilst imperfect, it's such a different piece, you know, and it's such a stronger version of the same material. Mm, absolutely, and yeah, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it's it's glaringly obvious where those reshoots were, mm. um, especially in the last big fight, I suppose. Putting them side by side, it makes you wonder why they even did. Leaving in what eventually was in the Snyder Cup wouldn't have made much of a difference at all to what was going on. I mean, I I don't understand why a good deal of that was changed, especially all the CGI top lip stuff. I mean, a lot of it was unnecessary. It just absolutely baffled me as to why it was done. Oh, yeah, and I mean, the thing is, they basically spent another movie's budget on reshoots for this movie, Mm. you know? Um, I thought, I thought what we do is we go through it in terms of there's uh, four different sections, presentation, plot, characters, and action. I mean, we'll be a bit of crossover here, but in terms of presentation, she mentioned uh, the Danny Elfman score, which I also wasn't a huge on. I thought, like, it was nice, but it was so nostalgic, playing a lot of the old character themes, and it was cheerier. And also the orchestra version of the Wonder Woman theme was really cool, but at the same time, the Junkie XL one was just so much more grungy, much more angry, and I think it was a lot more consistent with the sort of uh, end-of-the-world 
vision that I think Snyder was going for with it. Mm, absolutely. I mean, as I've said about Man of Steel, it, it was if the music was an additional character in the film, which Danny Elton just did not bring in that version. So it was such a relief for me personally when I saw that JXL was going to be back on scoring duties. And I've got to be honest, it was probably a little more orchestral than I was expecting it to be Um, because there was a lot of electronic synth stuff um, with the previous two films with uh, Batman and Superman. Um, But still, it didn't disappoint. It definitely felt like it had that extra layer of character that was missing. What do you think, Ross, about the presentation of both versions? Well, the Zack Snyder edition is leaps and bounds above it, you know. Uh, I, I, just, I just want to banish the, the this, this 2017 version from my mind. <laughs> my memory, I've got to be honest. Because I think you and I spoke in the week, David, you know, you need to watch this again. And I, I messaged you <laughs> saying, yes, I'm going to watch it. I'm watch, I put it on now and I lasted 40 minutes. And it's not like, <laughs> I, I can't. Honestly, I hate it to begin with. And... I tried it a second time, couldn't watch it, and I just tried it a third time, and I'm so glad that Zack Snyder's version now exists because I can now throw this away. I've actually got a DVD copy of the Justice League. Don't know why I bought it, but uh, <laughs> that, that, that went in the bin last week, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I'm kind of weird on that one. I don't think I'll ever watch the 2017 version again. Uh, I just don't see it as necessary now we've got the civil one the one thing I say about the presentation or if you mean with the filament as well I should have mentioned this earlier the one thing that I don't agree I, the one thing that doesn't work for me in this in these films is Batman in the daylight I, mm. I think he loses a lot of his over you know there's a few scenes in the daylight it's a bit like and it's not just these I mean they, Christopher Nolan done it in, with Bane in the fight scene in the Dark Knight Rises you know Batman in the daylight just doesn't work for me he looks like uh, uh, he looks like some. It looks like a, an imposter running around, you know, trying to be Batman. But that's just my personal view. Yeah, there, there were a few moments like uh, when they all take uh, Superman's casket to Star Labs, and they're all stood there in front of Cyborg's dad, and it just looks like they're going to fucking Comic Con or something. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it just looks so dafted out of place. Um, it's, it's, just like, as, it's just as daft as uh, Clark Kent going, uh, not Clark Kent, as Bruce Wayne going to Clark Kent's funeral at the end of uh, Batman vs Superman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, why would if, if anyone watching are thinking why is Bruce Wayne there? Oh, he must be Superman. <laughs> Bruce Wayne for the course movie was not subtle about his identity. In the in the uh, Justice League, as we're going to refer to it here, <laughs> where. Um, he takes a phone call in front of the villain and says Alfred's name over it. I was like, what? And then he goes to recruit Aquaman, openly referring to himself as part of the Justice League, you know? Uh, I didn't like it, it wasn't just that moment is when Lois Lane and Clark's mother are... It's different in the Snyder version, but in the 2017 one... They actually have a massive conversation in the middle of the press office, you know, mm. about they send and are we Superman and everything. I mean, if anyone was listening to that, they're in the middle of a newsroom full of reporters. I mean, the biggest headline the next day was we know who Superman was, <laughs> which, which, they, which they should really know because he died in Batman vs Superman the same day Clark Kent did, and now they got to explain how they both back alive. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, in terms of other parts of the presentation, I was unfamiliar with the character of. Uh, Steppen, of Steppenwolf until I saw that, right? 
and he looked so much better in the Snyder cut. Like his his face looked a lot less. Um, like he just looked a bit dopey in the uh, in the cinematic version. He looked a lot more horrific in the uh, in the Snyder version. He looked a lot cooler, basically, yeah. and a lot more intimidating. Mm. Oh, absolutely, um, I, I completely agree with that. It, it, it was a lot scrawnier and much more ambivalent in the uh, Justice League. So that's not going to catch on. But yeah, they definitely uh, beefed him up um, and just, well, fleshed him out from all sides. In 2017 version, he was one sided. All he was there to do was get these boxes and destroy the earth. No explanation. He's just needed to do that. But there's so much more backstory for him there with uh, this newer version. The one thing I will say about the presentation, the biggest compliment they can give the Snyder version is right from the changed beginning, you know, when the credits going up, it felt epic. It, you know, it, it actually yes. felt mm. like this This was going to be an event movie. And I, I, I was actually shocked because I actually went into this with low expectations. You know, I was one of the more many people who thought, do, I really, do we really need this version out there? But even the changed beginning, you know, showing the recap of Batman vs Superman, I was blown away thinking, oh, this feels, oof. you know, I had, I had a bit of buzz, I had a bit of energy. I don't know if it's because there's been lack of films out of material and this is something, you know, which is a welcome addition in our lives. But yeah, this felt, this felt, this felt special. I completely, completely agree with you on that. Um, that, I thought the beginning bit was fantastic. You know, that was a real uh, sort of all your hair standing up sort of moment as we see the physical consequences of the death of uh, Superman. From the get-go, it was epic. You know, this was something huge. And I, I agree, it very much felt like an event movie. Potentially, because yeah. as you say, we're, we're, we must have been to cinema for a long time. So. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I absolutely welcomed that. The 4-3 uh, ratio didn't really do much for me, but... I didn't mind. I mean, I've seen plenty of films shot that way, which, you know, it never bothers me. My only gripe with it really is we are still in the middle of lockdowns, quarantines, that sort of thing. Uh, I know it's presented this way for the eventuality. It may end up on IMAX, but who the fuck's going to the pictures at the minute? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just sort of thought, like, I bet you people watching this who don't have, like, uh, who don't have, like, a quality TV or are watching it on a laptop or something like that, because they're getting even less of the image than they usually would. Uh, at least if it was on Amazon Prime and you're watching it on your iPad, it'd fill the screen. They do that with four by three films on there, so <laughs> there is that. And I found um, the colorization to be very different between the two as well. Uh, it's definitely more of a uh, color washed tone with the Snyder cut than Joss Whedon, which I think he's turned the contrast up on his version. The greens are the greenest green you'll ever see, and you know, it, it's definitely. Uh, officially color, colorized on both, really. I mean, neither seem natural in any way. When you compare both of them's final battle in terms of their presentation, the difference is literally night and day. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. That's, that's the best joke I've got, folks. I feel, <laughs> I feel, so, I feel so pleased I prepared that a couple of days ago. Um, yeah, uh, literally, uh, uh, that that baffled me why they went. All right, we're now we're going to give everything this big red hue over it, you know, for your uh, for your final fight with the Justice League. It just, nah. 
Um, well, yeah, one thing I did forget uh, rewatching that version was the weird like tentacle roots and the alien flowers that seemed to sprout everywhere. Mm. That, again, that just seemed wholly unnecessary. Like, you're meant to be trimming the film down, not adding pointless crap to it, surely. <laughs> um, one thing I'm going to flaw Snyder on, uh, so his love of slow-mo, obviously people take a piss out of all mm. the time, and it's apparently 10% of the film is in slow motion. Um, I thought Fla- the character Flash was a great match for him for that exact reason. <laughs> um, but something about Snyder is the thing, he's not a subtle filmmaker. And where you had your Nick Cave songs coming in, you know, good choice of music, very on-the-nose lyrics. You've got Aquaman <laughs> going down to Atlanta says, there is a kingdom, plays in the background. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake, did he just do that? You know, um, I think with... Zack Snyder, he's not a filmmaker who gets bogged down in like duality of meaning or ambiguity or anything like that, you know. Um, but at the same time, it'll do quite cool. Is it Garth Marenghi who said subtext is for cowards? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> with the reshoots, something I noticed was that Ben Affleck's weight fluctuates between scenes and hmm. so does his hairline. I didn't notice, i got to be honest with you, I was too busy engrossing the film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a whole new reason to re-watch, see if you can spot the bits. I can't do another four, I can't do another four hours. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well, no, no, I'm talking about Whedon's one. It's a bit where Batman goes between rooms and he, and, uh, he gains weight. I was like, okay, so that's obviously the reshoot here. Well, I can make a note of that. In fairness to, uh, to Zack Snyder, with the exception of the uh, scene at the end... I believe all of it was stuff that he'd shot before 2017. Well, fair play. You could, t- you could tell he had a plan there, can't you? I mean, that's one thing I give him total and at the credit for. All the little plot lines that was built in Batman versus Superman, you know, and even Man of Steel paid off in this film. And I'm just happy that, you know, it's actually out there now for people to see. Well, this brings us to the plot section. Something I was pleased with here was in the uh, Snyder Cut, the boxies becoming active after Superman's death actually made sense. Whereas there's no clear explanation for it, the we didn't cut. Well, well the, the, the whole plot of the mother boxes is, is really shit, let's be honest. I mean, it's better explained in the Snyder version, but, you know, there are people protecting these powerful boxes for a thousand years, and when they shit at the fans, they don't really have a plan, do they? Wonder Woman's island, they point the arrows, <laughs> hoping that will stop it, and then they put it on a horse and, and run away with it. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit of, that, that is on both films, it's a bit of a naff storyline. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think which whichever side of the fence you're on, it's a bit lame. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think at least it was tied to the event of, of uh, Superman's death, so there was something they're able to do with that. You know, I mean, I think uh, boxes were also, as you said, yeah, they are an awkward plot device, but they yeah, are we, at least better explained. There's a yes, really- and you. So I was going to say, you do get that snippet of Lex Luthor at the beginning while he's still in the uh, Krypton ship. Um, mm. It's Steppenwolf with the three boxes there, which then leads on to his little monologue at the end of uh, Batman v Superman about, you know, the, the god is dead, so it's free reign from everyone else. One of my favourite bits of the film, just as a kind of what fuck moment, is uh, when you see... All right, uh, we're going to be, be keeping these boxes secure. You've got it being hidden in an ancient temple. 
by the Amazons. You have it kept below the water uh, in the kingdom of Atlantis by the Atlanteans. Then you have the humans dig a hole beside the river and chuck it in. <laughs> like it was like three feet deep. Like a dog could have just been able to find that, you know? Metal like, detector. I was like, what yeah. the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, like when 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 it showed you them doing it first, like it showed it like kind of zoomed in on their faces, didn't it? So it, I kind of got the impression that this isn't the last they're going to see of it, but it just didn't go anywhere. So I can only assume that after a few hundred years, it may have been erosion that <laughs> reveals the box. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was just so, so unintentionally <laughs> funny. Um, a bit, bit of the beginning where you see, like, so Whedon's Cup brings in, here's a world falling to shit without, uh, without Superman. There was... A bit of it was also unintentionally funny there. You know, we've got the... Um, this bit isn't going to sound funny. It's an explanation after it's unintentionally funny, right? So you've got the uh, racist attack happening at the shop. The thing that I thought to myself is, I don't buy that racists don't do racist attacks because they're worried about Superman seeing them. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, that's, just, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I just sort of thought, like, you know, I mean, I don't think Superman's... I, don't, I doubt he's really really intervenes in these sorts of things very often. I mean, I don't think if he did, like, you know, if he just had... Uh, if, super, if, you know, once Superman's got back, right, then, like, you know, uh, if you end credits, he could have shown the, two, the same two characters, like, you know, like, breaking bread together. <laughs> literally breaking bread together or something. And Superman's going, like, good stuff. Like, like you know, the old Captain Planets, where Captain Planet at one point um, brings peace to, uh, to to Israel and Palestine. And um, at one point, brings, <laughs> you actually see Unite Ireland. And <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I would like to see that happen over the end. <laughs> um, the pacing I thought was actually, despite that one of these films was four hours long, I thought the pacing was much better in the Snyder one because, like, he was using the time to time to build up the characters. You know, introducing three new people in an ensemble piece is an absolute mission here. And you know, credit to him. While the first act at points did feel like it was dragging. You got a lot more depth, depth for Atlantis, right? Uh, you know, you got a lot more of the sort of politics of Atlantis. I'm laughing my own joke. Um, you got a lot more of the sort of politics of uh, of Atlantis. There, you know, you got a lot of uh, a lot more context for Cyborg, especially who was completely done a disservice by the uh, Whedon cut, where they removed the entire NFL part from it. You know, Cyborg is a much more fleshed out character in the Snyder Cut. He comes across as an arsy bastard, you know. I mean, yeah, you're going to feel a bit pissed off that you're now a robot um, because you were about to die. Um, but he does have just the attitude of an entitled little prick in the Whedon version, and it doesn't really get any better. <laughs> you know, he doesn't really have any redemption or anything like that. At least we get time for him to. Well, from the off in Zack Snyder's version, he just comes across as a better person. Yeah, he's still tackling his new life, but he's, you know, not so much rebelling against it as he is in the Whedon version, and he's just less of a dick on the whole. 
I think every character is fleshed out much better in the, in the new version. Uh, I mean, even the side characters like Lois Lane, I, you know, I actually gave Amy Adams more purpose in the Snyder version than he did, you know, in uh, Whelan's version. Uh, you know, she she had a better storyline. Uh, she, she was actually in mourning. I like the fact that she was visiting his uh, Clark's uh, Superman's memorial virtually every day. Instead of going back to working on uh, Daily Plan like like uh, like he was forgotten in mm. the 2017 version, yeah. But then what I loved about this film, you know, I know it's four hours long, so you had the chance to, but it, it let you breathe in it. You know, you could it, it actually built up to something. You know, explain the concept a lot more. Like the um, end, the end part where they're bringing in like you know maybe the lowest is the key to everything was something darker. Like, because it just seemed to mean nothing in the Whedon one. I guess we go, okay, well, maybe hmm. Lois needs to be there to bring back Superman, which is something that we brought up as a possibility and then proceeded to dismiss in the Snyder one, which I thought was good. Um, but the, the, the reason why that you, the reason why he, uh, when she turned up towards the end and, you know, and Superman saw her, the reason why he stopped because she, he sensed that she was pregnant with his child. So that's the reason why you know why his humanity come back. He thought the lovely lady's pregnant with his child, and yes, she was actually the key, which actually makes sense to what the Flash said in Batman versus Superman. I think there was a few little bits where they seemed to be sorting out some things that were plot holes in the in the original one. Like for instance, when Cyborg appears to malfunction for absolutely no reason. It makes more sense in the Snyder one because you know he's he's had these sort of images of what will happen, and we imagine that that's that side of him fighting against himself, mm. like or at least yeah. that's that's the only way to really make much sense of it. Yeah, I think they have the same explanation. We just don't get that depth of cyborg understanding what they might be unleashing. Um, I mean, again, looking at them side by side, it's trimmed to within an inch of its life in the Whedon cut. Um, I mean, we, we basically get concise notes compared to what we see uh, in, in the longer version, which you know, is obvious. But, well, the same could be said as most of the scenes. Like, it, it seems to be that they've been just trimmed down so much we're only getting you know, some of it as opposed to everything we see, even if it's just a few seconds. It's, it, just those few seconds could just give you that extra little bit of understanding. And it just didn't make sense why they got rid of certain little bits. Oh, like the, uh, like the nice bit where Alfred and, um, and Wonder Woman are making tea together, for instance, just a, a small little sequence that just kind of enriched the, uh, enriched the world there. Or yeah. Like, which then also Alfred meet Alfred meet Superman was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that wouldn't have, you know, stretch the film out any longer than it already was. And plus that bit where Wonder Woman sat at the computer with Alfred, they actually make that bit longer in the Joss Whedon cut than they do the Zack Snyder one. <laughs> it was completely unnecessary. And again, just makes Cyborg come across as a bit more of an asshole than he should be. One other thing that I got for the plot part here is I like that, um, you know, towards the end where you're seeing this noise that's heard all over the world, you know, to build up the final fight. And I thought that that was mm. really cool. As with the beginning, he's got this great ability to kind of build something up, you know? And I reckon he delivered here... Uh, f- you, this 
for me, was a far stronger effort than either of Zack Snyder's previous uh, ones with DC. I think it was just way stronger for Man of Steel. I think it was also um, also more substantial than uh, Batman v Superman. While watching the Snyder Cut, I felt as if I had somehow gained the powers that uh, Patricia Arquette and Tuesday Night's character had in the Nightmare on Streets Parks 3 and 4, and that I had gone to bed, fallen into, into a deep sleep, and somehow become the dream master, and entered into one of Zack Snyder's ultimate wet fantasy dreams. <laughs> I mean, because it's, bas- it's basically Snyder having the biggest orgasm on screen. It's the Lover's Guide edition for fans of DC. I mean... <laughs> I honestly don't know how anyone can hate this film. It's preposterous. It's beyond ridiculous at times. I mean, come on, we have a scene where the Flash saves a hot dog in slow motion. How can anyone hate this movie? It's everything Snyder fans wanted and needed. And the one thing I did like about this version as well, which we haven't mentioned, that in the 2017 one, uh, they had this odd Wonder Woman and Batman flirting with each other. Oh, fuck, yeah. I, 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 I was really uncomfortable watching that first time. I know they got a bit of backstory in the comics, but I'm so glad in this version, the new version, it was more professional and they got rid of it. What I noticed about the Joss Whedon version, and it seems a bit obvious in light of recent revelations, is that he's actually toned down the women being able to help themselves. Um, For example, the part where Steppenwolf is fighting with Mira underwater, the bit in the Snyder Cut is fantastic. She takes the water away from them so they can't float. And then she starts to pull all the water out of his body. And then you see all the blood and that coming along. Oh, that was cool as fuck. Yeah. In the Eden Cut, it's Steppenwolf grabbing her by the throat, pushing her against the wall and throwing her on the floor. Like, they completely miss out a bit where she's fighting back for herself. I think part of the problem with it, though, is that with, uh, with, with, with the way that he wanted to do it, you know, Superman is essentially a one-man team here. You know, he's bringing in, like, these... Not only is the world fucked in the absence of Superman, the Justice League are pretty much useless without Superman. They're against this, for, this force far greater than them. And I think that was something um, that, uh, the, that Snyder handled way better. You know, Snyder showed her hmm. function as a team. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's um, a couple of other instances I picked up on as well. Um, there's the big fight scene in, w- was it the cooling tower on the island? Yes. Um, Steppenwolf says, she's mine. And in the Snyder Cut, Wonder Woman responds with, I belong to no one. Whereas that's a completely different line of dialogue in Joss Whedon's version. And then you've got that awful bit where... It's just after the little slow-mo bit of the flash, he knocks Wonder Woman's sword to her, but then he trips over, and then they fall down. In the Snyder Cut, they both land on their feet. You know, they're superheroes. What are you going to do? But in Joss Whedon's version, you've got, you know, she just about saves herself after killing one of those parademons, but then you get all that debris falling from above so the flash has to save her because you know it's wonder woman it's not like she can't look after herself and then they end up on the floor with his face in her boobs which he's previously done in ultron so like i think for whedon this is just one of his 
you know, years later, where we're looking at Vioterva as, as Whedon, we'll go, oh yeah, he's very fond of the of the comical face and breasts <laughs> motif. Yeah. You know, it's like his version of the Tarantino body of the trunk thing, you know? I'll stick up for Wheeldon Bureau. Do you think it's the studio telling him he's got to add jokes and make it like that? And maybe uh, that stupid scene of that news <laughs> report of a woman claiming an alien stole her husband, you know, with mm. a disbelieving news reporter who clearly mm. hasn't looked out the window and seen Superman flying around. You're right, I think the studio said, all right, we wanted to add humour, right? Or, you know, that's where you bring him in. But you're like, but the, the, the guy falling on a woman's chest joke, like, you're like, you know, last time you did this, People criticise you for it. And he's like, nah, nah, that's coming back. Back, We're going to do this to Wonder Woman as well, you know. Like, it just, it just felt lazy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And everyone is, like, 20 times more sarcastic as well. <laughs> I, you, you, you get that with a couple of the characters from your Marvel films. Like, Tony Stark, he's a sarky bastard. It's pretty much his defining trait. But here, pretty much, you know, every bit of rewritten dialogue is just them, um, you know, sarcastically having to snap at each other. Even Batman has stupid one-lines, you know, which, you know, in all the other films he might have done, but it's more in keeping with the tone of those films, whereas here, it's just, yeah, just... <laughs> Flash should be the comical character. You know, like, and there's a bit of humour where Cyborg and the uh, Snyder Cut, you know, the... Uh, bit where he's going, do you think Wonder Woman's into younger guys? And he's like, she's 5,000 years old. You know, all guys are younger guys, right? Yeah. Work. But, you know, it's not a gag as such, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's something that you could believe the character would just say quite gravely, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> but that's, that's another bit that got me. Why did they need to reshoot that bit as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that was perfectly fine as it was. And in fact, the reshot bit was worse. Something just... that I think does work. One extra bit of characterization that Whedon adds that Snyder didn't have is I liked when Batman's kind of got this existential angst about, like, I have absolutely no life. And I quite mm. liked that little bit of it. I sort of wish we'd done more with it. Yeah, he, he does seem willing to sacrifice himself if it means that Superman's basically back on the scene. He would be willing to take that for the team if it means they've got this god that can save the Earth again. Once Superman was in there fighting, and there basically there is his backing band, or uh, or his fluffers, I suppose. <laughs> you know, it was it just kind of seemed to like you know the others could have just left. You know, for Superman battering battering um, uh, Steppenwolf, right? It was almost a bit. It's not a bit where he's like, oh, is he still alive? And then goes to carry on battering him, right? Like it's just he's a minor inconvenience, you know, yeah. and that was. Like you, you, you got to feel there's a bit of danger here, you know. What was quite disappointing in terms of Superman coming back as well, like he finally joins them at the end during this fight. Things are just turning in their direction, and oh uh, wait, civilians! Sorry, fucks off and leaves them to So why did that need to happen? You know, they they added this pointless. Family to oh god the Russian fa- the Russian just, family subplot yeah just to oh. put a couple more things at stake in there but it just was completely a mess if that whole thing was not in there no one would have cared any less um and it just felt like it was there to 
let the Flash and Superman have a little, you know, couple of bits, stupid little off-the-cuff comments and, you know, the one-upmanship, that sort of thing. That The game was completely unnecessary. Uh, one thing I would quite like to add about those two characters is I enjoyed the post-credit sequence where the two of them are about to race. What, the walkie yeah. through montage? <laughs> yeah, to answer that <laughs> age-old question about Superman could outrun the Flash, that amused me. With Batman on this, and it's nothing to do with Snyder or Whelan's version, for me personally, I love the place he is in this big, you know, plot of aliens fighting in space. I mean, he looks so out of place. I mean, next to all those superheroes, this is a man who's virtually a rich a rich guy who lives in a back cave. And <laughs> his bad guys, his nemesis, a joker, you know, and the Riddler. And here he is fighting people like Steppenwolf and Darkseid. I actually think, I think it's the one film where I preferred seeing Bruce Wayne than I did Batman. And I think, you know, for the majority of him, to be fair, on Ben Affleck. And it's going to be a shame we're never going to see him in a solo film. Uh, I think he carries the film. Especially the Snyder's, especially the Snyder's version. I'm kind of weird on that. I mean, I think Batman being in the Justice League as a whole is a bit daft when you've got Wonder Woman and Superman for a start. Um, but I actually, there's one aspect that I did like, and I quite liked the beginning bit where he is using that criminal as bait to lure out one of the Paradines. I mean, it is a bit goofy and stupid, but I also enjoyed it because it was a Batman bit in Gotham, and I quite liked that little image of the city in that little section at the beginning. Uh, I quite enjoyed how they stylized it compared to how it was in Batman vs Superman. Jim, as a fan of the comics, Steppenwolf is he? Is he? Does he get much coverage in them? Uh, none of the ones I've read. Okay. To be fair, um, I. This was my first experience of the character as well. Um, I mean, I've, I've read a fair few of the comics, um, but not really many of the Justice League ones, to be fair. So um, I don't know whether he's a character exclusive to those arcs or what, but in the comics I've read, I've never seen. Because something I really enjoyed about him is uh, with the Snyder one, I liked that, you know, he's... like. He's not. He's not. He's not even the big villain in the piece. You know, he's actually quite pathetic here. You know, he's just doing this to try and impress his boss, basically. And uh, you know, Darkseid's the one that's really getting built up here. He's like, all right, Steppenwolf here. You know, this guy. This guy. He's evidently quite hard. He's a vicious bastard in the uh, Snyder when he's chucking horses around and stuff like this and breaking old temples. But so maybe he's basically just doing this to curry favor with his boss. You know. Yeah. His boss jumps in as if, like, you know, he's contacting him on Slack or something like this to be like, you know, what are you up to? And, uh, you know, he's like, this is my one chance to get back and so on. Like, he was such a more interesting character. Like, and he's kind of, he's both very fierce, but it reminds you that he's also nothing compared to Darkseid, you know, and that I assume Darkseid would have been in this, would have been in the sequel. Yeah, you've got that uh, moment where Darkseid appears on that weird monolithic space phone <laughs> and you know as soon as he sees him like he is literally his guard is down um he just becomes this pathetic little mess you know at his presence and it was great to see that there was more than just that one side to him of um here to destroy the planet <laughs> i think the we didn't cut like his motivation isn't very clear, you know. He, he, like he just he, when he comes in, um, 
to the temple and he goes mother you call me home to a box I was like yeah. his mum's a box like he just didn't really explain <laughs> this at all you know yeah it goes on about the, the unity and the, the mother the mother boxes although he does mention dark side in one little moment so again it confuses his motivation there uh, and you've got all that um, flashback to when he tried to take over the earth in, in the age of heroes um, and basically gets his ass kicked. That's completely retold in the Snyder Cut because it's Darkseid, not Steppenwolf that's doing it. What do you think is Steppenwolf Ross? Well, I think he's the worst villain ever in the original Justice League film. <laughs> he, 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 you know, he makes, he makes the walk CGI terrible, a terrible effect in the Scorpion King look like the work of art. And the worst villain ever was also in a DC film, which was Sharon Stone's character in Catwoman. No, we no. Got, she was invincible because she wore so much face cream, right? That was literally the plot. In Justice League, in, in, in Jota's version, he disappears for the majority of the film. He finds two boxes on his own with no, with hardly no, 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 no bother. And then when it comes to the last box, he sends those stupid little moths. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think he can't be bothered anymore. And then he turns up right to the end then and gives this little speech, which he only says on purpose for Superman to come in with a grand line, hey, I'm back. Ah, oh, it's pathetic, honestly. It really is. But at least in a Snyder version, he has a better story arc. You know, and I, I believe yeah, he, he, um, he looked great as well. You know, I know the CJ was a bit iffy, which I will think, but you can see why he had motive and you can actually see he just wanted to impress Darkseid who was quite a formidable four even though even in the new version we didn't get enough of him that and the when he finally does get the third box he finds it just lying there in a car park oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> uh, um, our small notes I've got of the characterization. Um, Flash is the most enjoyable character in both yeah, he's done a disservice in the Whedon one because we didn't get much of a context of his, uh, of what happened with his mom. We didn't get a relationship with his dad very much, you know, um, and we just didn't really get a sense of who he was, which we got a lot more of that in the um, in, in the Snyder one. I think he benefited from it. Cyborg, he's trying to look conspicuous, so he, he's trying to look inconspicuous. So you, so he wears a hoodie. It's like okay. An eye patch would be far more <laughs> useful here, or a jacket that at least closes. Um, and my last old character is Aquaman. He did almost nothing in the Whedon version. Like he was just basically there. Like I liked when he sits in the lasso of truth. That was quite funny, and that was a good addition. But other than that, he didn't really like. He didn't have that many cool moments. Like yeah, he surfs the baddie. Um, well, that's something that's some Snyder cut anyway. Uh, but he doesn't really contribute much to the plot. And, uh, you know, it's not really very clear why Batman was so desperate to employ him in it. Like, you know, he, for a lot of the film, he just felt a bit like a spare cock at an orgy. You know, like he, was, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't really doing anything that impacted, impacted upon the wider story. It's clear in a few points leading up to the main battle at the end that he is very strong. I mean, he does take on Steppenwolf at one point when he's stealing the mower box, and then there's a bit where... He intervenes when uh, that tunnel's flooding. Mm. And, you know, he, he's got his uses there. But, yeah, for the rest of the, the, the Joss Whedon film, he's you know, just a... 
just just there. <laughs> like it was bizarre if they cut out the scenes with William Defoe, for instance. You know, that this stuff is integral to his character, who he is. And we lose his best moment where, like, you know, he's got his great big trident that he's ramming through Steppenwolf, right? You know, bits where he was he was really cool. Um, and, you know, we just kind of lose this where he, he comes like sort of a kind of nondescript kind of character, like, didn't have the best lines in it, was obviously in a supporting role, and the audience wouldn't have known who he was. And for some reason, like, you know, he's got this... Uh, got this picture of himself on the wall as the uh, <laughs> uh, like as Brett, as like this uh, sea person whilst he's like you know sitting there going there's no sea person <laughs> guess, like, at least shave your beard if you're gonna have the illustration but yeah like i think snyder basically had a vision for the character and i think he delivered it as well yeah going back to that picture one of the things that great about the uh weed and cut as well was all the imagery for the boxes. Like, you know, we, we get that these are an integral, you know, MacGuffin, it's what's driving Steppenwolf, but it just felt really heavy-handed and forced. Like, when the Parademon explodes, oh, there's three boxes behind and it's entrails, and then they're on this wall, and it's in Lex Luthor's notes. And it seemed... Um, Yes, the pointless focus on a fair bit of the plot in the first act. You know, it was pretty much detailed when Steppenwolf comes along and gets him, and then you've got Bruce Wayne and Alfred talking about them several times. It just seems there's far too much emphasis on them for some reason. Uh, Ross, have you got anything else you want to chuck in about the characters at all before we move on? I think that the I think the Flash is better served in the Snyder version. I mean, the original, you know, Weedland's version, I didn't like him at all. I think he'd come across as a bit cocky and everything. But at least with the Snyder version, it's got me excited for the Flash movie that's coming out. Uh, Wonder Woman was totally different. I mean, I think she was a bit more darker in both films, but I think it's because of you know what Snyder brings to the table. But as you quite rightly said, I think Aquaman gives a lot more backstory. Sailor uh, Stone, you know, meanwhile pops up a lot more too. Uh, there's a big massive theme of a fatherhood and the relationships between parents and children, which you know is a main part of Snyder's DC superhero movies. And yeah, and I think Cyborg is virtually you know. I didn't like him in the original, in the original but he's, he's really good in this one. And it's a shame we probably won't get a, a, a film of him, his own film either. And actually, another wee thing I wanted to add about Aquaman is Aquaman in the Whedon one was basically reduced to a joke. You know, the, yeah. I, hear, I hear you speak to fish uh, thing that just kept on coming up, you know, and uh, yeah, it's like sort of bro humour they're going for. Yeah, Cyborg, uh, really quite interesting, quite tragic story that they gave him in the uh in the snyder one it takes like half half of the whedon one before we even find out what his backing story is yeah uh, yeah but you're going back to that aquaman moment and this is this is the most bizarre thing i can say when when bruce wayne walks into that pub and lets everyone know like you said that he's batman they have this odd confrontation and then aquaman's you know jumps in the sea and swims off but in the snyder version you get the same sort of similar sort of scene. Then all the people around him stops uh, start singing. And now that shouldn't work. But I sit there going, "Oh, I like this." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, any other scene, you think this is daft. Why they, why they, why these people start singing in song? But you know, it, it somehow absolutely worked. 
And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does seem to add a, a, a layer to the law, I suppose. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. What what did everyone think of Martian Manhunter's cameo? I, personally, I felt it was a little tacked on, maybe just there to appease some fans. I don't know the character at all, so I had to Google afterwards to find out who Martian Manhunter is. Um, yeah, it was a strange thing to end the film on. I guess, like, if I will come to this at the end, we're talking about what the future direction for DC potentially would have been and what it's probably going to be. I mean, this guy really is probably just as powerful as Superman and Wonder Woman. So why he only just reveals himself at the end, despite the fact we see him randomly, seemingly comforting Lois Lane halfway through the film. It just felt a bit silly, you know, out of everything that's already happening. Um, yeah, it just, just really didn't sit right with me. I mean, I, I, I thought it would have been a brilliant ending if they'd have left it after um, you've got that little nightmare section, you know, Batman and the Joker have been having words and then Superman comes along and leaves it on that ambiguous note. How good would it have been if the film ended there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, I I really quite dug the nightmare sequence, or the, the dark nightmare sequence, as people call it. Because, um, like, it goes back into the theme that he was trying to set up in, uh, in BVS, you know, where it's like, well, what, can we trust this? You know, what happens if Superman just loses it one day? And very, 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 like what we can assume is that Lex Luthor did something that led to the death of Lois, and then Superman just goes fucking rage. It was exactly what Batman had, had been worried about, and we know that time travels in some way involved. But the point, but like I thought it was interesting. But firstly, actually, that the Snyder actually shot additional footage of that because the Snyder, this is a total middle finger to the studio. You know, it's. I'm going to hint at a sequel. I'm going to make new footage to hint at a sequel that will never come out. Well, Snyder's, yeah. been, Snyder's been quite open on what would have happened. I mean, uh, in, the, in the next film, Men Darkseid would have returned again. I think it would have been 12, 13, 14 months later. And eventually, uh, he would have given Lois Lane to Batman and say, hi, you in the Batcave. But Darkseid would have come in and killed Lois Lane. He would have killed... and. Superman then would have blamed Batman but I think what Zack Snyder said is it the anti-life or the anti-matter yeah. the, the anti-life, anti-life would, yeah. would have affected Superman and would have turned him evil and Darkseid would have him in control and this all built up towards the third film which would have saw uh, Batman sacrificing, every, sacrificing his life to save everyone, bringing Lois Lane back from the dead, Lois Lane in with the child would have had a son, wouldn't have had any powers, would eventually become the new Batman. So that was set out in the, for the next, for, for a good little trilogy, which we never going to happen. That probably would be a more rewarding angle than what we're likely to get, which will be a series of standalone films, and then eventually mm. some sort of reboot, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think out of everything in the film, just that little sequence is what stood out to me the most. I think probably because it was so so tantalising as what what it could have led to. You know the way it leaves it. You just think, oh wow, this is going somewhere. But you know, inevitably it isn't. It's one last part here before we uh, end up. This ends up getting longer than the, uh, the Snyder cut. Um, let's briefly talk about the action here. I know we've touched upon this with presentation. But like with the action scenes, the Batman versus Scout part of the beginning, 
I find that really clumsy, far too much of an emphasis on close-ups, and it was strange to think this is by a guy who we know is an accomplished director, because that was in the Whedon reshoots. Whereas with Snyder, I think, like, if there was a a real emphasis on destruction in it, like, you know, the bit where the Amazons, the temple falls into the sea, which we did not see in the Whedon version, you know, it showed there's consequences here, you know, he's chucking the horses around, I was like, oh no, I don't want to see the horses get hurt, you know? <laughs> like, with so much more impact to these sequences and a much more of a sense of uh, of jeopardy that we have. Um, I mean, the only action sequence I wasn't I wasn't hugely sold on was the tribute to the original Superman when Flash reversed time by running really quickly. I didn't like the I didn't like the Flash symbols, you know, when he's running in slow motion and the blue thing. That's the only thing I didn't buy for some reason. It really put me off. I prefer. You know, the flash from the TV show, how they do it that way, which is bizarre because it's a lower budget. But, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, the blue streaks and everything, you know, no, nah, it, it, it didn't bite for me. And I hope they change that for the Flash movie. Yeah. And, and the way he runs in general as well. I mean, I know he's running faster than the speed of light, but it just looks really silly. Um, I mean, you never know. The tagline for the Flash movie might be, you'll believe a man can run. I'm still laughing at the fact that David said that they, he had no idea what Martian Manhunter was. So when Clark's brother came out and changed, he must have thought, what the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was like, the fuck? I'm still laughing at the I'm just giggling in my head. I come out of your face. What the heck? I, like I said, I loved a bit where uh, Flash is running towards Superman and Superman just turns around to stare at him. Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's a fun little bit. Um, just the, the look of fear in the Flash's face when he realizes that he's, you know, on, on is, the is same equal, yeah, t- same like time wave as him. What do you think uh, of the Dark Superman? I think that's more of just an homage to the uh, is, it, is it the Death and Return of Superman that yeah, plot line yeah. where he is killed by Doomsday, but. Um, eventually resurrected uh, i mean i've seen that um animated film of that a couple of times but i forget the circumstances around that but basically yeah he's he's buried in a black suit and i think he just sticks with it if i recall correctly so i think it's just an homage to that there's just fan service it was people have been demanding mm. for years and they you know for a bit of black suit and i think snyder just abided by it to give the fans what they want it didn't bring nothing to the storyline let's be honest no um what 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 was everyone's feelings on that scene where the, you know, you've got Superman fighting the rest of the Justice League? Personally, I was surprised that that was originally there um, because even in the Snyder Cut, it felt a bit shit. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit underwhelming for Superman's you know, first reappearance. I mean, regardless of which film you're watching, you've waited the, the whole film to this point, and it just felt like a bit of an anticlimax, if I'm honest. I was a bit shocked when they done it. I, I, I thought that was probably wheeled in addition. So when they repeated the same in the Snyderverse, I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit strange. You know, I didn't buy in then and I'm not buying in now, but that's probably just the weakest part in both films. Well, hmm. Snyder's film. Everything's weaker by the Josh's film, let me tell you. I was okay with it, but again, it comes down to this sort of like Superman doesn't really need them kind of narrative. Like I was surprised at how much harder he was than Wonder Woman in it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, prior prior to the film, I'd always seen them as equals, really. 
Right, mm. and then like you know, there it's like no, you know, this guy is harder than the entire team combined. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> you, you can headbutt them through the ground and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it's um, it, it sort of made the rest of the team look a bit feeble in comparison, and that, so I thought that was unfortunate. Hey, mm. it's, it's they're all you know, apart from Batman, they're all clusters. Gods, really, aren't they? I mean, yeah, the Flash isn't quite as strong, but he's got his strong points. But I guess it's just to emphasise that Superman is what they need to save the day, I suppose. But yeah, just just that whole sequence from where they go into the mothership all the way through to Superman flying off of Lois, it just, um, yeah, it's probably one of the weaker moments for me. Probably just it was a bit underwhelming that that's how he comes back. I thought there may be something more supernatural to it because you've got that um, bit right at the end of Batman versus Superman where you see the, the dirt on his coffin start to rise uh, before it cuts away. And you mm. think, ooh, here we go. But then uh, oh, it's just completely so forgotten. <laughs> yeah. talk about where the DC universe is headed, if it's headed anywhere, because we have a few movies coming out. We've got the uh, Robert Pattinson uh, Batman's coming out. We have J.J. Uh, Abrams is doing a new a new one with them right now, is he not? Well, J.J.'s planning a Superman film, isn't he? That's, yeah, 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 that's that's, right. that's that's the next in the line, but it's a bit top secret at the moment, and we don't know if Henry's going to come back in the roles, so we probably look at another reboot. Yeah, obviously the success of Joker, I think that might push him towards doing more of these sort of standalone films, saying, look, for the extended universe stuff, we fucked it by this point. <laughs> you know, we're not going to see the stuff that's been set up in the Snyder Justice League, because that's not canon right now. Maybe, you know, who knows, maybe there will be, maybe if we will restore the Snyderverse as the current hashtag goes, but... Um, <laughs> but I, dis- I disagree with that, with the Justice League not being canon, because obviously I think it all it all counts now, what happens in the Flash movie, to see there's going to be a big massive reset, or it's going to open mm. up in a big massive, you know, possibilities, because what, what the DC world have done, especially in the TV land, is... Uh, in the Flash, when they done the Crisis of Affinity Earth, you know the the four hour special, which is absolutely brilliant. I think Jim will tell you that. And they actually had one scene where the Flash's TV Grant Gustin meets Ezra Miller, Flash, and actually gives him the name the Flash. So that has opened up a whole possibility of where DC can go from now. So oh, I think it's cool. going to be honestly, yeah. He turns up and he says, "What did you call me? You called me the Flash." So that's how he got his name. And I think that scene alone has opened up a massive possibility for the DC world. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, especially if it's rumoured that Michael Keaton is going to play Batman in that film. Yeah, I mean, like the Flash, I think, is key to continuity here because you've got the Flashpoint storyline in general because what it is, the Flash, like he, you know, we've now established that he can go back into time if he runs at a certain speed but that's always been part of his story um and he goes back in time to stop his mum being killed basically and that has serious ramifications for 
what happens in the future. Um, and then say the TV show, for example, after he does that, um, certain things he interferes with by time traveling has effects in the present. So one of his friends, he's got a daughter. When he comes back, it turns out he's got a son. So there's various little tweaks in the timeline that can be affected by what the Flash is doing. So I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to keep a continuity going, but the fact they've mentioned having Ben Affleck, Michael Keaton, and so on in the Flash movie tells me that maybe they're going with this whole multiverse thing and therefore kind of keeping with continuity, but going off and doing their own thing with it as well. What I would love is if Michael Keaton comes back as Batman, because there's a bit of doubt to the moment, and he doesn't know, he's, he's unsure if he's actually going to do it because he just haven't got the time. But I would yeah. love if he came back and he enjoyed it so much and the Flash movie works that it could lead to Batman Beyond. Because I would love nothing more to see an old Batman chain, a younger Batman. Mm, yeah, I think but, that, that, mm, every, fan, every fan wants that because Batman Beyond is probably one of the best cartoons of Batmans of all time. Yeah, the, the uh, pilot for that was very good. Yes, um, it was. Isn't the, the Batman the next DC film we've got coming out? That's the, no, Suicide Squad's the next one. Oh, sorry, of course. I, yeah. d- I don't know why, but I keep forgetting about those films. trailer for that dropped today. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, it didn't really do that much for me, but I really liked the look of that shark. <laughs> oh, King Shark, absolute <laughs> favourite of mine. Uh, loved him in the Flash TV show. Um, I don't know if it's fact or not, but I think he may be voiced by Sylvester Stallone in the film. Oh shit, that'd be cool. It's James Gunn, boys. He's gonna he's gonna nail it. It's gonna be gone the Galaxy 18 version. What more what more can we ask for? It's gonna be it's gonna be brilliant, trust me. Oh uh, yeah, I think a lot of these characters we're seeing like in the posters and trailers are gonna die within about five minutes as well, which will be hilarious. <laughs> I've yeah, especially uh, the other upcoming ones, you've got Wonder Woman Freeze coming up. Yeah. Uh... There's uh, something called Black Adam. I've got no idea who Black Adam is. Uh, he's um, the arch nemesis of Shazam, and he's getting his own film before the two meet. So that would be interesting. Apparently, Pierce Brosnan's been lined up for Doctor Fate in that yes. film. Shazam's got a sequel too coming out, I believe. And uh, so it has Aquaman. Go mm. back, go back to the Batman or with Robert Pattinson. Mm. I weren't quite sold on the trailer. I didn't quite. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it's a bit too soon after. You know, I I, I had that Spider-Man kind of vibe. You know, as soon as mm. you know the Sp- Spider-Man three finished, they rebooted it like five years later, and I just get that same feeling again. But I'm open with Matt Reeves as a director. He should have proved me wrong. Well, it was originally planned to have Ben Affleck still, yeah. wasn't it? So. You know, you, you never know. I, I mean, I'm I'm definitely digging Robert Pattinson. You know, trying to stand up Batman. I, I really rate him as an actor. Um, uh, there's not well, other than Twilight, there's not been a bad film I've seen him in. So um, yeah, I'm quite looking forward to seeing what he brings. There's a lot of rumours about him and Matt Reeve hating each other. Yes. I've heard that as well. <laughs> no, no, like Patterson, apparently there's a rumour that, uh, that he shagged his co-star on, on top of the Batmobile. <laughs> yeah, the girl who plays Catwoman. <laughs> so, you would, I mean, don't want, if, if you had the chance, bollocks. you would. If you had the chance, you would. 
<laughs> I mean, it could, it could be absolutely bollocks. Don't get me wrong. So, like, you know, when we say that, this could easily be fake news. So, uh, you know, allegedly. Please don't. Yeah, please don't sue us. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I think he seems like a good choice for it. Like, yeah. he's one of those actors who, considering where he came from, he said the DiCaprio thing of really divorcing himself from his old persona. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the the first, I think the first film I saw him in since him being in Twilight was probably The Lost City of Zed, which was a great adventure movie. Um, and then I've seen him in Good Time as well. That was, that was really good. He's so good as a skeevy little bastard in that. Um, but going back to DC movies as a whole, where they should be standalone, where it's a big universe... Personally, I have got a lot more enjoyment out of the standalone films. I mean, I know Wonder Woman is part of this shared universe, but her films can be separated from everything else that's gone on. But it's pretty obvious. And Birds of Prey was an absolute blast. So, yeah, personally, I'm not fussed either way which way they take it because I've enjoyed all of the standalone films and the Joker as well. I thought that was brilliant. Um, I know that's been quite divisive as well, but personally, again, a fantastic film. I think it's a new direction coming from DC now and Warner Brothers. You know, they let's not copy Marvel. Let's do our own thing. And hmm. I think, you know, the Joker, the Joker obviously was a starting point. Uh, Birds of Prey was totally different to, to the other films we've had before. And yeah, I think it all boils down to what the Flash movie brings and then obviously the Batman movie. Right. Yeah, DC's always been, uh, you know, on the darker side. Of, of comics there's, there's no two ways about it it's them Marvel are two completely different beasts I mean yeah they're all superheroes but that's what I like better about DC is it's always that you know a bit darker and edgier but bringing James Gunn over was it was a clever clever ploy you know, oh, yeah. yeah yeah you know that's that's ingenious and I, honestly I think the Suicide Squad will will nail it this opens a box of a success, but then it's coming straight out to HBO Max, so how much of an impact that's going to be. Mm, plus, you've got um, Cineworld having that uh, exclusive deal with Warners as well, which I, I do wonder where it leaves the other cinemas as well. Right, times are changing, boys. Times are mm, changing. Because, I mean, it's miles away to my nearest Cineworld, so there's loads of Warner Brothers films, not just DC, but... Loads of other films come out this year. You've got The Matrix, um, Mortal Kombat. I know not many people are probably looking forward to that as much <laughs> as me, but, uh, uh, you know, just those. Um, I mean, I'm keen to see them on as big a screen as possible. And if I, I know they've got a, a deal which means it's not going to be on HBO until X amount of time has lapsed, but does that mean the same for other cinemas as well? It's, it's As soon as they put Wonder Woman 84 on Christmas Day, out to you know, straight out to streaming sites. Then that was the that was the start of the end of cinema. I know you still have the big releases, but I think we're going to go down this path now. I mean, they they're already going to have a four week or five week gap on some films, and I mean, most people are going to wait. And they if they can watch in the comfort of the warm and save money. The only thing I don't believe is the price in it. I mean, Tom and Jerry popped up today and it's fifteen ninety nine. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not to uh, watch Tom so and Jerry anyway. As long as my local cinema is open, I'll take that every day of the week over staying at home and watching the film. I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I can't. You can't substitute going to the cinema. For me. Mm. I, I'm kind of an, I, I, I want to agree with Jim at the same time I hate cinema audiences <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, particularly if you're watching a, a horror film that's not got an 18 certificate 
you've got like lots of rustling and like people going <laughs> all the way through it and I'm like nah this isn't my thing you know I like to go, I like to go to afternoon screenings to avoid that sort of malarkey I went to see it in the cinema and then this woman sitting in front of me who, who turned around she was a boyfriend and she turned around and looked at me she goes oh I hate clowns <laughs> and I looked at her and I thought well, why are you sitting here going to watch this film and that's all she did was scream throughout see I don't know sometimes it can add to the atmosphere I mean Sometimes there is a buzz when you're in the screen, isn't there? Um, but then on the other hand, you do get the odd dickhead here and there. Not, not when she had a scream like Flanders from The Simpsons. <laughs> Worst I fucking had was watching A Quiet Place, where there was only like seven of us in the, in the cinema screen, right? And there's a couple of people who sat uh, like two or three rows behind us, and we're just talking all the way through. It was like, this is one of those films you really can't do this during. You know, it's uh, like, ah, uh, irritated the hell out of me. So, yeah, for that reason, A, a Quiet Place 2 is one I'll definitely watch at home. <laughs> Folks, before we, we're about to enter our third hour. So, uh, depending upon how much is cut, this could be a Joss Whedon job, where, uh, in which case, we're entering our 90th minute. And what I thought it'd be fun to finish off by me reeling off Vulture.com's top 10 best DC films. They rank all 35, I believe they have here. And this includes uh, the uh, Snyder Cut, right? So I'm going to tell you the top, the tell you numbers 10 through to 6, and I'll see what you guys think are numbers 5, 5 through to 1. So, number 10 is Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Yes. Number 9, The Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Number 8, Joker. Number seven, Batman 1989. Number six is Batman Returns 1992, of course. What do we reckon are the top five DC films according to Vulture.com? Wonder Woman, Superman, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, and Green Lantern. You know, you got four, you got four of those correct. I got a feeling you're not quite serious about Green Lantern. Uh, number five is uh, Wonder Woman. Number four is Superman, uh, 1978, obviously. Uh, 19, uh, number three is Batman Begins. The Dark Knight is either one or two. What do you reckon the other film is, Ross? Ah, uh, Steel. <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal's Steel no it's not Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal's Steel number two is Superman 2 and oh, so number one obvious. their best their best DC film of all time is The Dark Knight which to be fair is a good answer uh, mm. the iconic performance of Heath Ledger in that film yeah towards the end it becomes uh, Patriot Act propaganda and that kind of pissed me off but at the same time Wonderful performances, very good action scenes. I absolutely love his legend. I think his legend is fantastic. I think yeah. we'll never ever see another Joker like that. Even though Fino, Joaquin Phoenix, done a really good job, but for me, Ledger is just wow. The moment he steps in and goes, "Would you like to see a magic trick?" and the pencil disappears, I, I was mm. sold. I was nailed. I was nailed at the game. Oh my good gracious me! This guy is, is fantastic. Yeah, he he was actually uh, upon first watching it. He, was genuinely scary. He just didn't know what he was going to do. And, and after seeing what he did with that pencil, it, it, you know, it all, it, you just had no idea where he was going. 
And I, I remember coming out of watching that for the first time shaking because it was that stressful. <laughs> I love when you like set fire to all the money, you know, you yeah. don't really give a fuck about this sort of thing. Because I know, I know a lot of people who were like, oh, well, you know, they obviously, uh, you know, they were trying to set, like, set up for a sequel by bringing Heath Ledger back and you know, why Batman didn't kill him. You go, no. The reason Batman didn't kill him is because Joker would have won if Batman had killed him. Yeah. yeah. Like it was like that was the extent of the subtext of it, you know. I'm saying, Luke, you know, I can corrupt anyone here, you know. I can even have, I can make Batman kill me, and Batman's like, no, which makes it even more, even more striking. What happens if Harvey Dent in the uh, in the next sequence? It's such a sad, sad line he says in the end of that film as well. We'll be doing this forever. When he's, you know, he's hanging on the rope, and sadly, I was wondering if, you know, what did happen? I wonder if he would have, but the Dark Knight Rises would have been a totally different film. I know he probably would have had been, but I always thought, you know, the bit with the prison where he was escaping and Scarecrow is sitting there, and I always thought that would have been the Joker. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could have seen that. I, that would have, that would, would have, would have been a. Like, I like to think he wouldn't have been the, the main villain again, but it would have been great just to have his presence there. Yeah. You know? And the thing mm, is, the Joker is such an iconic character that, you know, uh, it's amazing what Heath Ledger did with him. Absolutely. Uh, talk about a haddock to follow. I mean, <laughs> he just, <laughs> there was no way it was ever going to be as good as that in, in The Dark Knight Rises, which personally I think, again, is a, is a great, great film, but it's just a different beast. Quick question, it occurs to me. Can you think of any other example of two actors who both won Oscars for playing the same character? No. Godfather, part two? Rob De Niro, Morning Brunt, or... Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll have to double-check. That, that's what zapped in my head then. It might have been, I'm not sure. Did Jason Statham and Lee Marvin win Oscars for their portrayal of the same character? Is it from Point Blank? <laughs> if Stephen win, ever wins an Oscar, um, congratulations. I just I'm very, very surprised. He should, have won, he should have won an Oscar for kicking a shark with his foot in the neck. <laughs> Before we go, or can I just say, uh, if you haven't seen it, the two, the two guys who play the Penguin and the Joker in the Gotham TV show are absolutely fantastic as well. I have to mention them because they were, especially the Penguin in that, he's probably the best Penguin you've seen for a long, long time. I've never seen the Gotham TV show, but I feel like I sort of should now. Folks, I think we've got to get ourselves heady because this is, this is the longest one we've done so far, I believe. And, uh, you know, I mean, to be honest, we've had a hell of a lot to talk about. In upcoming episodes, we'll probably be, uh, there's a potential plan that we're going to be doing the Scream Quadrilogy soon. Horror cult films will be returning to horror. Until, until then, folks, it's a, it's a goodbye from me, guys. Goodbye from yourselves. Bye.
music by white bat audio.